Hey everyone, this is Wayne here with the Green Pill Podcast. It's been a long time since we had our last episode, and I'll explain a little bit why in the context of this conversation with a good friend of mine, Matt Johnson, who's sacrificed so much for the animal rights movement, is facing eight years in prison. His trial is just a few weeks from now, and so I really hope you hear the story. But it's also just kind of a fascinating, hilarious story, because Matt's gone through a lot of ridiculous stuff, including attempted drug deals by the FBI, naked protests of Bernie Sanders, and working with Pulitzer Prize winning journalists. But there's so much more I could say about this conversation. Really, you should just hear it yourself. So without further ado, here's Matt Johnson. Matty. We're here. <laughs> We're here. I've, I've been thinking this day needs to happen for a while. Yeah, we've been waiting six months. And the podcast has, has not happened for the last six months. And now we're coming out with a with a bang because this is the first podcast we're actually recording in person. We got it. For those of you who are listening, we got a crowd of people at the table, someone sitting behind us, and feels like this is a celebration of the end of the pandemic, huh? Yeah. Well, it got Wayne Shung to buy me a beer for the first time ever. <laughs> of course, uh, you know, c- coming from a place like, well, we need to maximize the impact of this podcast here, and we need people to be loose and relaxed and everything. So, but. Uh, I got my beer here. Yeah, we're trying something new. I don't know how good my beer preferences are, but I did my best. Yeah, well, so. it it has alcohol and it tastes like yeah. beer. But no, I, this is something I've been wanting to do for a long time because uh, Matt has an incredibly strange story that you're going to hear about. And our journey together is also really strange because when we first interacted, I honestly sort of wrote you off and thought you were just some... I've told you this, right? I, I feel like I've told I, you this. I, yeah, I know. I need, I need to hear that story again. I, I mean, I, I think I've heard it though. You somewhere. sent me a bunch of long Facebook messages. You're this guy from Iowa that I've never heard about. And it was one of these situations where someone's writing you these long blocks of text and you're responding with like one word answers. And you're yeah. just wondering, what is this guy about? Well, you should have seen all the long blocks I sent to like 50 other people. Like everyone in TXC is like, oh my God, you're amazing. No, those are good times. But uh, my producer is going to kill me if we don't talk a little bit about just what's happened in the last six months, because we haven't had a podcast in a long time. And we started this podcast in the middle of a pandemic. We had as a client on the show, had a bunch of journalists. And, you know, honestly, for me, the last year was a hard year in, in a lot of ways. And honestly, I think the most important way it was hard is it just made me really spiritually tired. I was kind of exhausted. And I don't get the sense it happened to you. Am I right about that? Like, were in, you tired in the last year uh, and a half? I, I think I bounced back pretty quick. I, huh. when, when you started saying that, that what came to mind was uh, uh, election night uh, for yeah. here in Berkeley. And I, uh, so, so, yeah, so this, this was the night and, you know, we thought it was going to be a close race. And, you know, yeah. I was pretty active in, in Wayne's <laughs> campaign. And, well, actually, I was the, uh, I'll take, I guess, the blame slash credit for uh, coming up with the idea in the first place. Anywho, we get to election night and we're thinking, you know, we thought we had a, you know, 50, maybe even a little more than 50, 50 shot, um, yeah. you know, which in hindsight, 24% of the vote for, you know, everything we're up against is, was, was pretty solid. But anyways, on that particular day, I was feeling, uh, yeah, the, the dispiritedness pretty hard, but then like by the next, so, so I left, there was like the whole party, everybody's hanging out. The yeah. first results come in I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm like, am I, do I believe my eyes? Okay, I believe my eyes. Now I'm going home. Yeah. <laughs> but I, but uh, yeah, I think it, uh, overall I kind of uh, yeah don't get don't get dragged down like that. And I I don't know. It's all just kind of like one giant never ending game of chess, trying to change the world as best we can. Yeah. No. I mean, you're pretty unique in that regard. I think I read 
in one study showing that around 60% of people under the age of 30 were suffering from depression related to pandemic because there's something about the isolation and this just dark sense that the world is falling apart. I mean, literally everything is shutting down that caused a lot of people to go into a mental spiral. And, you know, you face some pretty difficult challenges over the last year and you're still doing pretty well. And honestly, we should probably go into how you think that works for you. And it might mm -hmm. just be genetic. I think some people just have lucky genes. There's probably a little bit of that in you. But I think you do some things personally that are really good too. Like, yeah. frankly, working out, you know, staying social. You, you're interacting with people a lot. Uh, having a lot of projects that keep your mind active. Yep. You know, one of the things we know is that for animals and human beings, when your mind's not active, and obviously we're all sitting at home, and this is really bad for me. Like, so Matt was the one who launched this campaign, so I'm going to blame him for the loss. I'm just kidding. It's, it was actually a huge, huge learning experience for me. And I think, honestly, hugely net positive for my, both my personal network and for the animal rights movement and environmental movement because we met a lot of really positive people. But we almost shut it down, you know, almost a month and a half after we started because we started campaigning at the end of February. Not a great time to launch a political campaign. The pandemic hits. And then I face a really difficult breakup, and we can't campaign. And I'm sitting at home. I don't even have my dogs at this point because I just moved out of my house that I used to live with Matt and my ex-girlfriend. And, and my ex-girlfriend took the dogs and the cat. The pandemic hits, and like a lot of people, I'm just sitting at home staring at walls. I have literally no one I can interact with. And you know, I'm running for office, so a lot of people are playing loose and goose with the rules. But I'm thinking to myself, I mean, I would have probably done this anyways because I think I'm definitely a rule breaker, but I think you break rules to help the world, For not the to help right yourself, yeah. not just because, you know, I'm lonely or I'm bored, you know, you should. And, and so I was trying to stick to the rules and just stayed at home 24 seven. Yeah, in terms of like walls. canvassing and or not yeah, going Well, not just canvassing, just social interaction, because oh. back then you couldn't, you know, unless you're part of the same household and in California and Northern California in particular, I think Northern California triggered everything. San Francisco and Berkeley were like the first cities to completely lock down. Unlike a lot of places, it wasn't just stores and restaurants. It was households. Yeah. You could not hang out with anyone outside of your household. And if you're a single guy who doesn't have any roommates, it was awful. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I have not suffered from depression. I mean, I'm one of the happiest people I know. Like you and I are pretty similar in this regard. And I was feeling depressed and honestly, almost like a little bit, I hate to say this, but I was like thinking... Wow, this I was having these weird emotional reactions, especially at night when I was drifting off to sleep and when I was waking up in the morning, where I remembered what it felt like to be suicidal. I mean, I've talked openly about the fact that I was suicidal for a long time, for frankly, like 15 years of my life, from the time I was 10 to the time I was 25. And it was 100% being around amazing human people, human beings, like the people at this table, people like Lewis. Lewis is very positive. Lewis is, for those of you who don't know, Lewis is not just an awesome person, but he was also helping us out with audio today. But just being around really awesome people who had similar values, who cared about the world, and who cared about me, it made a huge difference when I was 25, getting involved in the animal rights movement. And then I felt like on March 16th, I still remember the day, March 16th, we lost all of that. I just lost everything. And yeah, today, it feels so good to feel like it's over. And it just, I don't think, I mean, it's funny, because I am very, obviously, knowledgeable public health. We've done a lot of investigations of pandemic risk from animals and factory farms. And, you know, we could talk about what actually caused this particular pandemic, but I don't think there's any question that originated from an animal that was probably being exploited. You know, whether it was a wild animal, a bat or a penguin, a raccoon, a pig, 
in a factory farm. We don't know exactly where it came from, but it came from an animal. Mm-hmm. And even us, like we're very well versed. We've been talking about pandemics and disease risk, even for us, just how quickly it happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, was that your experience, dude? Was it a shocker for you? I know you live with a bunch of people, so it was a little different for yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. You no, know, it, it really was. And um, I mean, yeah, I remember like the, the time period where, you know, it just it seemed like everybody like kind of was starting to catch on, like this is a really yeah. serious thing. And then it's like I go to, you know, I hadn't seen some friends in a while and, and then, um, you know, for uh, or something confidential we were working on. So we were going to like briefly meet up like in like a, like somewhat closed off space or whatever. And so I come in with a face mask and then other people, you know, it was like, kind of like, like, Whoa, man, <laughs> calm down. You know, there's, I don't yeah. know. This is like, you know, uh, but, um, yeah, it, uh, yeah, certainly in California where, where there was a lot more crackdowns, it, uh, it's, it came on quick and uh, just changed the course of a whole lot of things. But we still managed the campaign, and it was incredibly controversial. We got hit really hard when we started canvassing in June. And it was funny because the same people who are attacking us for canvassing were supporting Joe Biden, mm-hmm. who was also canvassing, and mm-hmm. AOC, who was also canvassing. And by June or July, when we started canvassing, and for those of you who don't know canvassing, canvassing is just knocking on doors, you know, mm-hmm. you go out there and we're definitely standing. We had all these instructions, stand six feet away, cover your face mask. I totally fucked up and my face mask was always coming off my face. And, you know, Amir was making fun of me about that. But we well, did this. Hear about your, yourself, uh, the, the self haircut you attempted. That's, <laughs> that was the biggest, uh, like, uh, this man, the, the, the future, you know, for all we know, the leader of Berkeley. Boy, yeah, that was I, like if people have seen have seen the show Jack Jackass where they come at each other with the buzzers from behind and they like hack the shit out of their hair. That's yeah. like far better than what Wayne did to himself before he tried to go out in public. Do we have any photos of that haircut? The I mean, haircut I was trying I to be nice. I was yeah. trying to be supportive. Be like, is there a pr- like? Are the people hiding in the room? Like, oh, just ask Matt. Like, if this is look okay? It's just like, what? And for the record, Matt is hardly has the best hair. Are you? <laughs> Are you losing a little hair? Are you, uh, I, I feel well, like you're losing a little hair. Right? I, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I've heard, I've heard rumors. So, uh, but, but although uh, it, it, it kind of looks a lot different when it's like shorter versus longer. I don't know. Go. I feel like it hasn't moved that much since I was 23. But I guess that's yeah. what I would like to tell myself. So Matt's a guy who's, you know, he's he's desperate for every hair he can get. And even Matt <laughs> was saying this hair is too much. Just just get rid of it. So no, it's pretty bad. Um, but we still managed to canvas pretty hard for. Two and a half, three months. You know, we experimented initially just me in June. By July, I think the team was canvassing. And this is around the time we almost shut down the campaign. I still remember July 4th was the deadline. And, and partly because Matt was doing his wacky stuff. And for those of you who don't know, Matt, Matt is wacky. He's done he's wacky in a good way for the record. But I, I honestly didn't even know what was going on. And it's subsequently was revealed. I think. The VSD investigation, VSD stands for ventilation shutdown, and we'll tell you a little bit more about that in a second. But that was released in June, right? Uh, well, it was the very last End couple of days of May. Okay. And then, and then we did like the direct action campaign yep, that was yep. basically two weeks thereafter. So Matt, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you out a little bit, Matt, but mm. Matt was the one who originated mm. this campaign. He was the one who said, somebody's got to run, probably should be you because, you know, you get on your feet, you actually know a lot about these issues, and you're going to be able to fundraise pretty effectively, which is true. We actually raised more money and, yeah. than and, the incumbent and, and mayor. And you're going like, to hustle more. I mean, yeah, yeah, and I did lo- hustle. Oh, lots of reasons. Oh, yeah. I, I hustled hardcore. It was, it, was, it was a, I mean, like I'm a pretty hardworking guy, but last year was definitely a year where I didn't take a single day off. Yeah. I canvassed every single day, yeah. you know, and was working on the campaign every single day, with the exception of three weeks after the pandemic hit. I just 
was staring at walls wondering what the hell to do. But, um, you know, Matt, Matt was the one who originated this campaign and said, you should run for mayor. And then he says, sorry, I got to disappear because this other opportunities come up. And I didn't even know exactly what it was at the time. Cause you know, I'm, I stepped back from leadership in September of 2019 from DXC. And I really did step back. Like, Lewis and Matt could tell you I'm not in meetings. I have no <laughs> idea what's going on. You step back far more than I would have liked you have. <laughs> I mean, I hear about stuff on Facebook. People are like, did you hear about that crazy? And, uh, no, actually, the funniest thing is when people come to me and say, that's amazing what you just did. And because I'm not on social media uh, so much, like I'm like, oh, what did we do? <laughs> and they're giving me credit for something Matt did. But so Matt says there's this opportunity that's come up, so I got to step back from the campaign from March to June. Matt, who was going to be heavily involved in the campaign, pretty much wasn't involved at all because you, you know, I could say this now, you weren't even in California. Um, and so we almost shut it down because, you know, we had a few months where people were like wondering what the hell to do. How do we campaign? We can't even, because we had all these plans to have house parties and rallies and all that stuff you know, went down the tubes. So on July 4th, we said, if we can't start improving our voter contact metrics, we just got to shut it down. And I mean, to the team's credit and, and, Matt is frankly more responsible than anybody else because Matt, I think, I think it was right after you got back from Iowa and the, the VSD expose was published in early June, you rejoined staff and lo and behold, we hit our target. And so if you need something magical to happen, call Matt Johnson. It just might happen. <clears throat> yeah. It, uh, if, to the extent it was, it was a thing worth doing. But uh, yeah, I, a lot of benefits to it uh, that weren't you know, captured in just win or, win or lose. So what do you think? I mean, what do you think the best thing about the campaign was for you? Oh, man. Um, I know, for the record, Matt is not exaggerating at all when he says he was devastated. I probably, this, I don't see Matt sad very often. That was the saddest yeah. I've ever seen you. I mean, I don't know if I told you this, but Casey actually told me, I don't know if Matt's doing so well. You oh, it. I know, I know. Every, I was getting like a <laughs> slew of messages. I'm just like, I just need to go home and, and get and high and watch YouTube. Like, it's I was be, the one who just night. lost. I was the one who oh, just yeah. got humiliated publicly. And, and then, but no, I, I mean, I was okay with it. And yeah. for the record, I, I think, because I, you were always more optimistic than I was, I think, that we yeah. could succeed. I, I mean, we did succeed, don't, such, don't get yeah. me wrong, that we could win, win the yeah, actual yeah, vote. Yeah. And I always thought, you know, the establishment has enormous amount of power, especially in a time where people are feeling scared. People are going to latch on to something that feels safe and electing somebody who has 16 felonies alleged against them, who mm -hmm. has a vision to transform a city into a first plant-based city in the world yep. at a time where people are just afraid their grandma is going to die. You know, people just want yeah. to take that risk, or at least 51%, 24% were though. Yeah. But anyways, what, what do you think was the best thing about the campaign? Oh, uh, I mean, I think we learned a ton and got a ton of valuable experience, and we, <laughs> I think I, uh, I feel a lot more kind of wary and conscious of uh, just sort of like how the mechanisms happen uh, politically. Yeah. Uh, for, just how messed up you know, everything is. Yeah, I mean, you know, really the last well, like were, month of the campaign. You were um, already like one of the most cynical people I know <laughs> about the political systems. How did? What did you learn yeah. to make you more cynical? Yeah, I, maybe it wasn't learning as much as like feeling it, yeah. like that. That last like month of the campaign. I mean, there was this one particularly just really gross and dishonest article that came out in in Berkeley side here, and it yeah. just was. Anyway, I don't know what I get into, like all the details, but just really like kind of they know who their their hometown, you know, power centers are basically. And uh, from that point for till the end of the election and then like election night with, you know, results that were 
at sky level good, but in the moment it did not feel good at all. It felt very disappointing. Um, yeah. yeah, that was the, my, my month of kind of feeling dispirited a little bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, imagine if we, you know, if we could play that again, uh, or a scenario like that, but we start earlier and we don't have a pandemic, um, you know, like, yeah, this is that, that's a pretty, pretty optimistic picture overall. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things you're saying is just reminding me of the difference between understanding abstract something is wrong and corrupt and then experiencing it personally on the front lines. And that's true of a lot of things. It's certainly yeah. true of factory farms. We both know this yeah. because, you know, you watch these things on Facebook, you read about them and uh, they might feel awful, but it's it's a different experience when we're seeing an animal like collapse on the ground, suffering to death. And we've had some crazy experiences in that regard, which mm-hmm. you know, we'll share with you. But the same thing is true of just political corruption. Like you hear about how fake politicians are, how much money influences politics, how many lies are being told by the political system. And then you see this article by a publication funded with tech money, you know, tech money that we wanted to tax more, companies like Google, outright lying about us. I mean, just saying things like this is a network that ignores sexual assault and harassment and maybe even covers up sexual assaults claiming, you know, we're, we're abusing whistleblowers and that, that I have this magical power. It's it's so weird because you read this article and I felt, wow, this guy's really powerful. And then I looked Mm -hmm. at myself and I said, I'm not that powerful. (laughs) Like it was funny because the first version of that article, they got this wrong, but they said, even Glenn Greenwald, you know, even Glenn Greenwald, this incredibly fierce independent journalist has been enamored. Yeah. was so enamored that I think the original quote was, I had a life-changing experience, something along yeah, these lines that it's just when I first so... interacted with Wayne, he changed my life more than anyone else yeah. has ever. And it turns out he was actually talking about Amy Goodman. <laughs> oh, well, right? okay. was... I was thinking of a different thing. So that same yeah. person who wrote that Berkeley Side article went on local TV and then so, that was, that was the enamored, like Glenn Greenwald is enamored, enamored with him. him. Yeah. It's like, we all understand this guy's actually like not to be trusted, but somehow yeah. he swooped Glenn Greenwald into his grasp. So be careful. Yeah. Which is funny. Cause I, you know, if anyone knows Glenn Greenwald, one thing Glenn Greenwald is, is skeptical, like independent yeah. too. Like yeah. he, he's the sort of person, anyone tells him to do anything. He does the opposite. And yeah. both of us know Glenn. Glenn, for those of you who don't know, is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. And he's a guy who broke the Edward Snowden story. Like this, this massive surveillance program that the NSA, the national security agency was unlawfully tapping everybody's phone, their emails, just tracking everything you're doing. Unlawfully, and, and multiple then Obama administration officials had actually come to Congress and testified about this, and now just outright lied mm-hmm. and said, "No, this isn't happening." And then Edward Snowden leaked it. And when Glenn did this, you know, they were getting targeted by the U.S. government. His husband was pulled off an airplane and interrogated, and they thought they were going to get charged. And Edward Snowden had to flee the country because he's still being charged with all these kind of you know terrorism crimes because of frankly, the wrongdoing exposed in the U.S. government. And, and Glenn was the one who reported that story. He's also, you know, love him or hate him, he's also been the person who over the last couple of years has called out the Russiagate story, you know, has questioned the conventional narrative on the Capitol riots. And he's not the sort of person who's easily influenced by anyone. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I, the, the way it was being portrayed is this, you know, incredibly almost magical cult leader. And I, don't, I mean, yeah. it's, it's funny, too, because you and I, most people think Matt and Wayne, and, and we're good friends, and obviously we see eye to eye on some things, animal rights being a very important one, but 
one of the things I want to talk about a little bit in this podcast is I actually probably disagree more with you, at least within DXE, than anyone I talk to in the animal rights movement. And, and Than anyone you talk to in the animal rights movement? You disagree more with... I mean, obviously, like, if I... I mean, regularly. I don't, I don't uh-huh. talk to, for example, the head of the Humane Society that often. If I talk to the Humane Society, I would. But mm-hmm. of the people I talk to, like grassroots activists, genuinely grassroots activists... And, you know, maybe that means I should talk to more people, and I'd like to talk to more people. I, I should say, I mean, there's some people I talk to regularly, like Rick Pittman, the owner of, you know, Mary's Chicken, huge whole food supplier. I disagree with him yeah. much more than it. Actually, on tactics, though, maybe I don't. You know, Rick and I actually <laughs> see eye to eye on That's provocative. Time. But it's a bad sign for your tactics. Let's it call, may be a bad sign for my tactics that I agree with the chicken farm. Let's call it boycott veganism and <laughs> let the online <laughs> social media mess begin. Let's, let's not go there. Or maybe we should go there. <laughs> no, but... Uh, you know, you and I have had some very intense disagreements, and some of the most famous or infamous stuff DXC is known for. You know, people give me credit and blame for these things, and honestly, a lot of these things were Matt's Matt's ideas. Like, you know, the Bernie Sanders protests, I kept trying to argue people out of them, and most people saw me as just, oh my God, Wayne is doing all these ridiculous things, or naked people running around on the stage of Bernie Sanders. Which might as well be, you know, we'll just round to the, yeah. <laughs> I mean, not, not that I, anybody's bound by the truth when it comes to critiquing DXE, you know. Yeah. And there were no naked people. For the record, I'm not necessarily against these protests <laughs> and disruptions um, for anyone. But, you know, and we could talk a little bit about the strategic differences we had. I just thought for a network, and, and these are things DXE has done. We've, we've done really powerful disruptions of presidential figures, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton. And in fact, I mean, you made your name as an activist, and the first time I heard about you was when you were disrupting presidential candidates, what, um, six years ago, five years ago, in 2016, 20, right? Yeah, 2015, 2016, 2016, 2016, 2016 yeah. Chris Christie, and back in the 2016 Yeah, well, you were, you, were, you were down with, with some certain amount of that. Chris Christie, I was down oh, for. Yeah, and, and not, uh, yeah, Bill, Bill Clinton. Uh, Bill Clinton, I didn't even know about before it happened. <laughs> I don't think I Did knew I, about it. I think I maybe I didn't didn't tell the details. I remember. I, I think yeah, I think I didn't like explain everything. You're like you don't need to know basis. You don't need to tell me or something like that. And then it was like, make sure to have your hands visible. Huh. <laughs> I, yeah, maybe I didn't know. Thought, about this. I, I, I thought it was. I I, yeah. I could be off, but uh, um, yeah. Well, look, we're getting ahead of ourselves because most people don't know what we're talking about. Um, so, but I mean, I think the big difference. To, between you and me is is thinking about the nature of disruption and I, there's a lot of social scientific literature on the power of disruption and there's no question that movements that don't disrupt fail that's just that's just true you know and huge part of what a movement needs to do is just engender the confidence to say hey something's going deeply wrong in our society whether it's a racial injustice gender violence you know speciesist violence which is what we're concerned about with direct action everywhere first and foremost and if you don't call attention to that issue by stopping business as usual, you're just not going to make change. On the other hand, there's also a lot of research, and this prominent political scientist, Sidney Tarrow, is probably the best example of this, saying that disruption is a double-edged sword that is incredibly powerful and a tool for good, but if you use it improperly, it can cause a backlash that's bad. Some of the backlash is good. Mm-hmm. You know, there's backlash against the civil rights activists. Yeah. There's 100% backlash against gay rights activists. I mean... Back in the 80s and 90s, when the AIDS epidemic was was killing tens of thousands of Americans, and primarily within the LGBT community, you got backlash just for saying, I'm gay. Yeah. You know, and especially in a time where there was a pandemic 
that was specifically afflicting the LGBT community, it wasn't just backlash in terms of I'm judging. It was backlash in the sense that I am actually terrified to be in your physical presence because people didn't know. They didn't know yeah. how this disease was transmitted. I mean, Lewis is too young to remember this. You weren't mm. even alive in this time period. But Maddie and I, I mean, how much yeah, do you remember they got, the they got so, uh, Yeah, no, there was like an explicit, uh, like a part of a class. We had like the DARE, you know, a mm -hmm. drug abuse resistance education and then AIDS yeah. specifically within that. And yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it was actually what you, exactly what you're talking yeah. about as far as like dispelling the myths around like how it's transmitted, yeah. that it's like blood and yeah, sexually transmitted and not just, you know. Like, yeah, you can't yeah, just like, stand in the room with someone's got AIDS. everyone, you know, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of, a lot of AIDS was... A lot of the HIV transmission was occurring through the use of needles, and, and that's why the D.A.R.E. program and the AIDS movement were related. But, you know, in the earliest stages, everybody thought it was a disease just of, of gay folks. And so, you know, coming out as gay was disruptive. And, but they needed to do that. And mm -hmm. Larry Kramer, the famous playwright who, you know, passed away, I think, last year, rest in peace, he was the legendary gay rights activist who said, we got to stop being afraid. We got to start acting up. Like, yeah. literally... That's the name of the organization mm -hmm. they started, ACT mm -hmm. Up, because he gave this resounding speech said, saying, we can't be cowards any longer. We can't be hiding. We've got to get out there and get our message and be loud and proud about it. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what they did, and they changed the world. So, but I think the big difference, actually, I mean, I'm interested in your perspective on this. I think the big difference between you and me is in perceptions of the danger of disruption. I think I, you I think see it as way. mostly a positive thing, no matter how just and I, I think uh, I think I've come come your way you know really? over the years, but it was, I mean you sorry, keep doing on. more and more disruptive things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'll give you a concrete example, um, and we should go back. You know, we're gonna wind back into history to the beginnings of of uh, frankly even going back to when Matt was five years old because Matt's got a fascinating story mm -hmm. that I want you to tell people about how you really became an animal rights activist, what, 30 years ago? You're 35 now? Uh, yep. But 35. Yeah, and I think, I think it, was, it was five four. years old. It was four. There was, yeah, there was but, like, yeah, but yeah. I'll give you one concrete example of how we're in many ways doing even more disruptive things. Matt was on Fox News recently masquerading as a CEO of Smithfield. And not only is this incredibly disruptive, but this kind of like fucks with media figures that, you know, I mean, you pitched to some journalists that we're trying to actually work with. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, yeah. Well, no, no. So, so, so you have the guy who, you know, to, to, to your point, the, literally the person who, you know, prominently is getting a bunch of media attention for misleading Fox business is Maria Bartiromo, like yep. lying, mm -hmm. <laughs> presenting myself as the CEO of Smithfield, getting on there, saying things that support what we want to get out there. And then, yeah, I mean, a week later, not only the same organization, but literally that guy yeah. <laughs> is sending you a pitch saying, hey, here's our investigation here. You know, you should believe us. We're totally trustworthy about what we saw in farms, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, we sent them a fake pitch and then we sent them real pitch. This is I mean, they can say it now is Bloomberg. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. No, we example. sent them a fake pitch and they didn't bite on it. And maybe because they sniffed it out and figured out that, you know, it was not true. Yeah. But so anyways, I mean, stuff like this. I mean, I argued my heart out to try and convince Matt not to do this, and we did it. And I think it was as good as it could have been done. And in, I mean, it turns out, I will say, like, there were a lot of benefits to it. There were a lot of people, even outside of the movement, who were cheering you on. Because for those of you who don't know, Maria Bartiromo, mm -hmm. is that her name? she's very famous for basically reinforcing the Stop the Steel, or Stop the Steel myth. I mean, mm -hmm. she's been cheerleading. I think she was literally the first person that Donald Trump talked to after the election 
where he came out and said this was stolen. Yeah. So she's not a particularly popular person, especially in the left. But even with someone like her, you know, lying, I mean, literally taking over her show felt to me like it was a sort of disruption that was going too far. And, and that would reflect poorly on us because the, the thing about disruption is whenever you do disruption, you always, in my view, have to be able to claim the moral high ground. You've mm-hmm. got to be able to say, we're doing this because we believe the world should be doing the right thing. And our actions reflect that same mentality, that all of our actions are at root infused with this sense of compassion and goodness and goodwill toward everyone. And when you do things like deception, you know, and, and I'm not saying I don't engage in some deception myself. Every open rescue is in a sense deception. You're not just going in there with a, a smile on your face and waving to all the farmers and saying you're, you're hiding yourself. So there, you know, like you don't want to take things too extreme. But things like explicit deception to me feel like disruptions that have the potential for backlash. Mm-hmm. And I think for you, it's just, I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to be open about what you're doing. So it's not in that sense dishonest. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good question of where you, where you draw the line on that. Um, you know, something like uh, disruptive protests of Bernie Sanders is a more kind of a, a, an immediate thing that goes in your direction. Um, not, I guess that, that's different than deception, but uh, it's, it's definitely... Wait, explain think, what you mean by that. What do you yeah. mean by it goes in my direction? I mean, your, your, your argument that, that it was not a good idea. Um, yeah. I think a lot of that was underestimating the power that we have, that, it's, yeah. that it, it comes from a place of like... If, if we don't have power anyways, like Bernie Sanders isn't going to pay attention to us anyways, like yeah. let's make a splash and get our message out there. And then, yeah, through, through the course of the campaign, it was like, we kind of did or could have had a shot there. And that is a, yeah, you know, yeah, that's I mean, a big deal. For those who don't remember the Bernie Sanders protest, which occurred both in 2016 and 2020, I mean, the, the original reason for this, well, the original reason for this was we saw Black Lives Matter protesters doing a very effective disruption. I mean, it literally was a bunch of protesters taking the stage and taking the mic away from Bernie Sanders. And right after that, he actually added a bunch of people of color to his campaign staff. I think he shifted his policy you know, to include more about racial justice. So we thought, wow, this is a really important way to seize the agenda. But my fear was, I think that for disruption to work, and in particular, disruption like that, that is and, and can be perceived as even physically threatening, you know, and I think this is one of the counter arguments received. And honestly, some of the media attention we received from future disruptions was this is dangerous. It's got to be a form movement that already has like a certain amount of political understanding and political power. Because if, if you're coming out there and people don't understand anything about your movement, it's easy for them to perceive it as just an attempt to like hurt someone mm-hmm. or an attempt to take power for yourself. Well, with racial justice, I mean, I don't think anyone doubts that black folks who are protesting against their community members literally being murdered on the streets are out there because they're seeing their friends, their family members, their, their, their brothers, their sisters, their children mm-hmm. being murdered on the streets. This is why they're there. And you understand, okay, this is urgent. That's why they're doing this. Whether you agree or not with the proposal, that's what it's about. Well, with us, and, and again, this is part of what we need to overcome, but I think this is the way p- people perceive animal rights and to a certain extent environmental activists until very recently. It's like, come on, get serious. Just, this, is, this is not a serious issue. And so if you're so urgently protesting 
that you literally take a mic away from someone, which you all have done. You've taken mm. the mic away from Bernie Sanders. It can't be about the issue. It's got to be about some other motive you have, whether it's right, power, right. attention, and so on. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, what was what was the first Bernie protest? Uh, Do you remember which one it was? Well, was this in 2016? Um, yeah. Well, in in Chicago, um, actually, I can't remember which one it was. I mean, it was like some in in Illinois and in Wisconsin. Um, I mean, the one in Wisconsin got that Vice article, so that would have been. Yeah. That wasn't the first one. So there, there was a, f- yeah, I think, I think Illinois was the first one that was like kind of attempted, but kind of didn't really work or did, didn't, or did, you know, wasn't disruptive enough to get the, you know, anybody paying attention really. Um, and then, uh, in Wisconsin, we did it. And that, that vice article came out that was, uh, you know, that, uh, at the time it seemed, you know, pretty incredible. Like they're talking about speciesism, yeah. you know, like that's, that, yeah. That's a great like article. Mentioning the, yeah, just like the, the mention of it. That, that was the article that actually kind of changed my mind about the campaign. I was really against it. And then there's an article in Vice. I think the title of the article is Why Vegans Are Protesting Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. And it actually really does go into depth and detail. And it's incredibly sympathetic because it points out that Bernie, you know, love him or hate him, he's been a big supporter of big act. Like when the yeah. dairy industry was falling apart and the dairy industry is very much big business, it's corporate America. I think Bernie was a was a lead legislator and giving them like a $600 million bailout. You know, at the time when we got so many Americans, I think the figure is 40% of Americans can't even pay an unexpected $500 bill. And we're giving 600 million. And it was also at a time when Bernie had been complaining about the bailout of the banks and rightfully so mm-hmm. back in 2008. So yeah. And, and yeah. And I think me being a, a Bernie, uh, I was a local delegate in, I can't remember if it was 2016 or 2020, but definitely myself being like a Bernie supporter right. bolsters it too. And people, you know, yeah. cause immediately like coming out of the woodwork, like hilariously, like yeah. uh, I remember at one point there, you know, Facebook posts or, you know, YouTube everywhere. This whole thing was at was like, you know, you're a shill for insert whoever Hillary or George Soros or like whatever. Mm-hmm. And then at one point <laughs> I'm like, okay, here's a picture of my car. You see where like the front bumper's not attached? Okay, end of that conversation. <laughs> Wait, explain that more. I, I mean, I was just like making the point of like you I do not here. have money. No, I mean it was like I, I had uh, got into a minor accident recently, and so my I was just like my car is junky. Junky, and okay. so I just sent a picture like, okay, this is yeah. my literal actual car you're, right you're now. You're not some George Soros so, funded. Yeah, yeah. Plant. Hillary Clinton ain't, ain't paying ain't paying for shit these days. Yeah. So wait, let's back this up. Um. I want to definitely ask you about getting involved in Animal Rights because I think that's a fascinating story. But let's let's talk about your involvement in in DXC as well. And and so let's walk back to I think 2015. You know, and you're just like a, a vegan in Iowa. Um, and and how do how do you decide? I think Chris Christie was the first presidential candidate you disrupted. How did you decide this was going to be your thing? I mean, well. Uh I mean, at that point, I was in touch with some DXC folks and it kind of, uh, you know, I don't remember, ex- but the, the sort of conception of doing something like this was extremely ambitious and terrifying and also awesome and amazing. And uh, it was some sort of like a um, something like this, idea. meaning disrupting your presidential. Yeah, it, yeah. W- it just seemed, you know, I mean, now, like, I don't know, we're all, yeah. you know, I just. Yeah, you, know, you just get like well, you normalized. Are yeah, you're, oh, you, yeah, it's normalized for you. I think other people still find it intimidating right. and terrifying and awesome or horrible. You know, yeah. I mean, so I had previously, yeah, I'm, I'm literally am at at home, and I'm this is how I first found DXE is I it was like shared into a Facebook group or something like uh-huh. that. 
I happened to wait. What was shared into a Facebook? Uh, yeah, so it was a, it was a, a video of a of a disruption. I've talked to him, uh, Glenn Alexander, who's like you know like kind of like a smaller guy, and he yeah. goes into this uh, like steakhouse bar type thing or something, whatever. And then anyway, he goes in there and he's doing his kind of like speak out thing, which is you know this very you know polarized you know the sort of thing like Wayne was referring to there that yeah. you're going to get a ton of negative reactions. Obviously, you walk right in the middle of a steakhouse and you start talking about animal rights and yada yada um was just like a disrupt speciesism thing yeah yeah that kind of thing where people just go once you know one solo you know one person doing it anyway and so he's just you know pretty quickly you know not only like getting asked to leave but getting like pushed out the door and like he's so he's coming into a restaurant and he just gives like a speech about animal rights and he starts getting shoved out yeah and this is what the disrupt speciesism campaign was yeah just like a challenge a social media challenge that was Kind of model after the ice bucket challenge, if you all remember oh, that. Yeah, yeah, where you just challenge someone to do something a little bit ridiculous on social media. Yeah, to get more clicks. And this yeah. is actually another campaign that blew up in DXC's history that I was not involved in at all, and uh, kind of didn't like that much. Yeah, of like. and <laughs> but yeah. it's it's so much. Yeah, like so many people, you know, so very common is it? It's, yeah. it's it's cringy. It's like all you know, it's that, and then it's like if you get like one in a hundred thousand, you know, and I, I'm uh-huh. not even total. I, I think it's I'm probably pretty net. I don't know where I'm at on this, but it's, yeah. it's a fair argument. Let's just, I, I'm, I'm there. Um, but you know, if one in a hundred thousand people see yeah. that and react the way I reacted, it's it extremely worth it. Worth it yeah. I would say, but I just don't think it's, it's how much. And you know, my so, reaction at the time, I could, uh, you know, I, I see this video, and as, as, as I'm here talking about Wayne giving me beer, let me tell you another story to reinforce a weird narrative. Uh, so I was uh, sitting in my bed at like 1 or 2 in the morning. I was pretty, pretty uh, looped up here, pretty drunk, and I see this video, and I'm like sitting there in my underwear, and I'm... And I, I just like I'm crying. And this is where the string of messages Wayne refers to come in. Like a lot of people got those and they had some, they were, you know, and they invariably me. would message me about that. I'm, I'm, like, that I'm like, oh, I don't yeah. like this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, go ahead. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, it was, it was a, it was a very good night for me. Uh, I was, uh, so was that your first exposure to DXE? Yep. Okay. And then Alexander. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, you know, and that one, then, for, you know, from there, like immediately clicking over to the DXE yep. page and watching a bunch of so other videos. I will say this about Glenn. There were a lot of disrupt species and videos that were cringy, but still very powerful. I mean, the, the, the part that I didn't like about it was I think it was very easy to portray us as irrational, yeah. a little bit, you know, honestly, unstable people who just, yeah. you know, just like you might walk down the street and you see someone who's homeless and has a mental disability who just starts screaming uncontrollably. Yeah. I think there was a little bit of this going on in the disrupt species and protests, but Glenn Alexander didn't feel that way. So he was not one of the most, in fact, I don't think Glenn's disruptions were even cringy at all. They were kind of street theater. Yeah. Glenn was a very good speaker. Yeah. He was a small guy. And one of the things that was appealing about these videos was because Glenn was kind of a short, small, white dude who had a little bit of like a higher pitched voice. Mm-hmm. He was like in theater. And he didn't seem like the sort of person who'd be just barging in and just taking yeah. taking control of the situation yeah. like in that way which like totally, but he did I it loved it. yeah he totally did it and it was incredibly powerful for so many people to see this little guy yeah who has you know not like a deep angry throaty voice mm-hmm. just speaking in a really powerful way and because i think he's got a theater background i could be wrong about this sorry Glenn, if you don't have a theater <laughs> background but i think he had a theater background yeah and giving these quite eloquent speeches yeah 
And Glenn was always super chill. So, because when you do this, inevitably people freak out. Yep. They throw food at you. I mean, I ended up doing this challenge myself. I got physically assaulted and tossed out of Ruth Chris Steakhouse on another occasion. I got ketchup and mayonnaise dumped over my head. Yep. Um, I got threatened physically and shoved out of Chipotle on multiple occasions because this ended up going viral and Priya was the first person to do this and I didn't even know they were going to do this before they did it. They just kind of did it and put it up and mm-hmm. you did the hashtag, which is kind of how DXC rules. I mean, it's just, and it's one of the great things. It's one of the worst things and also one of the best things about DXC. Just people just go and do stuff. Mm-hmm. But it goes viral. Glenn picks it up and does it. I do it. And, um, but the thing that Glenn did really well too was he never got mad back. Mm-hmm. He, it always felt like everyone else is overreacting. And this is, I've talked to you about this. Like, I think the genius of someone like Sasha Baron Cohen is not that he is, he does wacky things, but you can tell he's still under control. Yeah. Like he's in control of the situation. It's yeah. the people around him who are doing absurd, ridiculous, outrageous things. And, and that's, that's also the delicate balance of disruption, yeah. right? Disruption where you can claim the moral high ground where you can say, no, I'm doing this because I've got a case to make. Yeah. You know, and I don't have any other outlet. Like when they are literally putting our friends in prison, and I, I mean, not just our human friends, because back in 2012 when we started this, the entire movement was terrified because a bunch of people who are grassroots activists in the mid 2000s had just gotten out of prison yeah. for posting on a website about animal rights. Oh, people are still terrified in Iowa. <laughs> people are still terrified. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, it's, but our animal friends too, they're, they're literally in prison and, and they're not able to, to, to raise their voice because they're all sealed off in these hermetically closed factory farms where the screams, the screams of the mother pigs in these gestation crates aren't being heard because they're out in Southern Utah, thousands of miles or hundreds of miles from the closest human civilization in a place that no one's going to see them, hear them, smell them or care when they die. And we're just getting out there and speaking that truth that needs to be spoken. When that is a narrative, I think it's powerful. Mm-hmm. When it's these people are just out of control, yeah, <laughs> right. And 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 Glenn was not one of the people who seemed out of control. Having said that, I said this many times, and a lot of people would ask me, you know, I, I feel like I, maybe I had a conversation with you about this too at some point, Lewis. I'm just I'm I'm having this sense of deja vu as I'm sitting here. A lot of people would ask me, do you think these things are good? Like, what makes for good disruption? And I said, and 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 they point to one of the disruptions where someone was doing something that was quote unquote cringy, you know. Stumbling on their words, getting really mad. I mean, in some cases, we even had people fighting back. Like someone would get ketchup dumped on their head or a hamburger thrown at them, and they'd fight back, and, and mm. they'd started seeming out of control. And what I always said is doing things that are out of control is the best way to train yourself for control. Like until you've actually been tested. And this is, I'm actually interested because you have a pretty good sense of self control in these really intense environments. And I'm wondering what it is about your background. For me, it 100% was like 20 years ago, I was a kid who was completely out of control. You know, I stole my parents' car, got into an accident. I was getting in fights in school. I was doing all sorts of wacky stuff. I'm actually glad I never started drinking or using drugs, mostly because I just can't stand the taste because I'm pretty sure I probably would have been addicted because I have a very obsessive personality. If I started drinking or doing drugs, I probably would have killed myself. But for me, the way I've exerted control over my own feelings in and, and my own behaviors was 100% through experience. You know, I just started going out there. I was an angry, angry vegan 20 years ago, you know, and I, like, and I'm not even saying this is a bad thing, but I literally took the meat from my parents' refrigerator, threw it out. You know, I 
would basically disrupt my own family's Thanksgiving and say, you're all not going to do this. I did one of those. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not even saying you shouldn't <laughs> do this. Alcohol is also involved. You shouldn't do this the way I did it, though. Like, I did it in a way that was basically exerting my moral superiority. I was saying, you all are scumbags. I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. Because I was a cocky 16-year-old who yeah. just read Animal Liberation. I thought I, I knew everything. I thought I was a shit, and my parents are stupid. And, like, my parents are good, smart people, but I thought I was smarter than them. So I did this sort of shit. But having those experiences and testing my ability to control myself is 100% the reason why I'm able to do some of the things I do today, which is, you know, like when people dump ketchup and mayonnaise in my head, I just smile and said like, oh, thanks. You know, like when I get punched at a Chipotle in 2015 and it happened and I, you know, bloody lip and. Well, just, that's not contrived. That's like, this is going to be you know, social media. You get some pride. Like this is going to be like actually. Well, to get to the point it's, where it's you can. sheer joy. To the point that you can feel and think about the strategic value of yeah, that, you've yeah. got to have control first, yeah, yeah. right? And a lot of people don't have control. So I always told people, and I don't know if I told you this, Lewis, but I always told people, I'm, I'm not going to judge someone because they don't exercise the amount of control that is optimal because the way they're going to get there is by trying it now and doing their best. And yeah. the same is true of speaking mm -hmm. quality. The same is true of kind of your ability to kind of physically you know, represent yourself well, because, you know, body language actually does matter. All this stuff mm. really does matter. And all of it only happens when you get a chance to practice. And it's, I mean, I think that what you're saying about, about, you know, people coming off well, or even not so well, like how that can have a positive is, is, a, is definitely a thing. I think that even seeing people struggle or people really be up against it, you know, rather than somebody just nailing it, which is yeah. just like, you're just a badass or like whatever. But, uh, and, and I guess this isn't even true of, of Glenn really. Cause he, he, he spoke really it well. Yeah. yeah. But it's like having, uh, like my favorite football player of all time is Doug Flutie, which is just like, what, <laughs> uh, you know, but like the five foot seven, like totally like, how is he doing any, Doug and Flutie. he like made it, you know, just was like making it work. And yeah, he didn't even get drafted. Right. I think right. he wasn't even drafted. Yeah, and he was, uh -huh. played in Canada for like, you know, yeah. seven years, whatever he got drafted, you know, first played in the NFL, at like 33 or something like that. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I think like there's definitely the, like overcoming it narrative. It's like, okay, Glenn is like myself right mm -hmm. now. Like that's, that's pretty much what I would look like as like the best version of myself, which at the moment, like doing anything like that was terrifying. Yeah. 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 For, yeah you just, 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 uh, through, uh, exposure therapy, I suppose of a sort, you just like do it, you get used to it. I mean the, the Chris Christie disruption, I vividly recall, I had a thought that if, you know, that I, I wanted to run away. Mm -hmm. I was like standing in the front row right there. We wow. had this whole thing planned out days ahead of time. We did a banner. People drove in from, you know, Illinois and, and from various places. Like it was, a, it was, you know, just like a huge deal, you know, whatever. And we got there and like, I was going to ask this question and everything inside of me just wanted to run away. Yeah. And if not for the fact that I had, you know, so many people that were counting on me that were watching and they're like, send me the picture, y'all at the uh, apartment in Oakland. Like, hey, we're watching, blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh God, that just was made I it there? worse. I don't even remember this, to be honest. Um, I feel like maybe I wasn't even there. I mean, I knew about sure. the Chris Christie yeah. disruption. Yeah. But what, what made you decide to do this? And tell us a little bit about Chris Christie too. Why was Chris Christie the target of this initial yeah, protest? I think, well, it wasn't a thing that was, you know, top of mind for me, but it, it the reason it, was was more optimal for us and for what other people were thinking about was um that he had vetoed a bill that would have banned gestation crates in new jersey um which 
in addition to the pretty obvious fact that gestation crates are just horrifying ethically, if you think about what they are, where these pigs can't even turn around, can't do anything, um, it also was opposed by 87% of uh, New Jersey residents, New Jersey voters, you know, overwhelmingly opposed. Uh, but, you know, well, this is presidential season, 2015, Chris Christie, you know, going to so give it a go. go Iowa so and, Iowa, you know, yeah, the yeah. Pig, the pig farming And so that was the, huge. yeah, and so with, with, with the mainstream media, it's useful to have a narrative that's, that's something other than animal liberation, like free them all type of a thing. So that, that worked out uh, in, in that way uh, for the kind of our first go around with, with that sort of thing. But who, who came up with the idea originally? Was it you or was it us? Like our uh, team? I, I think it was Zach. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was Zach. But what, I mean, why, tell us more about why you decided to do this. Cause how do you go from being drunk, Rolling around in bed, <laughs> laughing in your underwear, crying. No, crying. this is, this is uh, yeah, crying and both enjoy, right? Well, not crying. I mean, because I was excited for it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like people are talking about like the most horrifying, you know, moral atrocity of our time, but also like people that are enormously inspiring. So huh. all the, all the, all the cries. Wait, but what? I don't. I'm still not quite following. Why were you crying? I've never heard this before. No, I, I was. You're crying I was. In joy? I mean, it was. It was mostly in, in joy. Yeah, and I mean, it. It's you know, people all. I mean, the, the subject matter is just as heavy as it always is. We kind of get a little okay. uh, empathy fatigue, or, you know, whatever. It's just sure. like all yeah, the time. Yeah. But, uh, you know, at the time I was more, yeah, I'm in Iowa and it's like I have an awareness of what's happening to animals, but it's just not a thing that is talked about by anybody. And I'm mm -hmm. the only vegetarian, vegan, post-vegan, whatever you want to call it these days uh, around. Um, so this is in... Des Moines? No, where no, were you? No, I was I was uh, living in Dubuque. Dubuque, okay. That's uh, right. Yep. Okay, so you there. see this, and then what happens next? I mean, take us on the journey from yeah, well, your bed to the stage where Chris Christie is giving his speech in Iowa, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, okay. that was but, the Iowa so State Fair. Um, and so yeah, so I'm, you so reach I'm, out to us. And yeah, say, I'm, I'm looking at yeah. I send many many long messages that were read by almost no one yeah. uh to uh, people who do activists i don't know people probably read them but uh so that happens and it's kind of like you know like figuring out what what this is and you know already i don't i'm not thinking about like movement theory and like you know is like education and vegan outreach the way to go or is like movement building i'm gonna think about anything like that but i know like i know the effect that it had on me yeah. and that's right. some pretty significant evidence you know mm. that's on my brain right then so you know kind of Looking at sort of just the, you know, look, here's this guy, Wayne Shung, is telling us, uh, you know, social change and uh, what's, what was the one? Why am I not, uh, why am I blanking on it? It's social change. Why everything we think, uh, why everything we think we know about social change is wrong. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. one. People need to go, people need to go watch that right now. It's yeah. like 2015, 2014, uh, there's maybe a few different ones. Yeah, it was, I think it was at the Animal Rights Conference in 2014 that yeah. I gave that talk. Yeah. yeah. So you actually watched that? Uh, yeah, I mean, Before I watched a ton involved. of stuff. I mean, okay. though, there was that one. Oh, another, another tearjerker, Path to Liberation. People, huh. come on now, get involved with that one, too. Yeah, that, that was a good video. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was awesome. I'm just, it's just very embarrassing things happen. Alone in my apartment, <laughs> in my underwear, very excited to hear uh, Wayne just, we will like the Path to Liberation. So people need to go check that out, and people need to uh, carry that visual with them when they do. It's only a bit of goody. All right, so you're inspired, and then you reach out oh. to us. What are you reaching out to us about? I don't. I just yeah, like, I remember I long do? blocks yeah. of text. I don't actually remember why you were writing long blocks of text. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I mean, it was it was like, what? How do I do this thing? This is mm -hmm. seems awesome. Like, how does you know whatever happened? And then there was there was an evolution of you know, okay, 
you know, here's why, you know, we need to get the issue on the table, et cetera. Do a couple of uh, uh, cringier side protests for sure to start out with. So that was nice. Uh, got this that. is in Chicago or in Iowa? You well, went to Chicago, right? Okay. Well, there's a, cu- a couple in Iowa. Iowa okay. I might have, maybe they've been successfully scrubbed from the internet. Maybe yeah. people can find them if they really try. I do remember you asking me in the earliest stages, you know, what should I do and how do I organize in Iowa? I think you were trying to build something in Iowa. Yeah. Right? Yeah. For, for, for a, a bit there. And then I, uh, I mean, honestly the other blog, you know, uh, or not the other blog post, but, uh, the, the move to Berkeley blog, blog post, uh, yeah. which, uh, you know, Berkeley side's favorite. So much trouble. <laughs> and, yeah. And you know, it's like, these things tend to be, there's a, you know, the bigger the upside, bigger downside often, uh, you know, because that it just, made sense to me for all the reasons, yeah. you know, that, that are laid out there. Like, oh, okay, Berkeley kind of seems like a thing to do. Yeah. In this Iowa's- is a blog post called Why I, I Should Move for the Animals or Why I Should... Yeah, Lessons from Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, Lessons from Occupy Wall Street, Why I Should Move for the Animals and for yeah. the Animal Rights Movement. Okay, so you read all these things and you're thinking, this is great. Let's, let's I need do to this. go to... Yeah. And so it, it kind of, you know, I mean, it, it you know, it, it, the, the synthesis of it is like people should... Uh, you know, in general, uh, be clustering, you mm-hmm. know, co- go to these, uh, you know, hub cities and, and build political power and mm-hmm. share resources, et cetera, et cetera, in places like Berkeley. And that it's, you know, you know, that that's, that's the best path, you know, Berkeley okay. sets the example, everybody follows behind and, and so on. And so I'm kind of like, okay, yeah, I, I'm seeing this in real time here when I'm trying to start something in Iowa. Well, for one thing, like my skills and my knowledge were a lot less than they are today, but you know, largely it's just social norms. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like so much of it, if you live in a place like Iowa, you can talk all the logic, all the, yeah, you can have all the good arguments and all the charisma and all the whatever when you talk to somebody, but they turn around and they're still in Iowa versus Berkeley. You got the Berkeley animal rights center and Mm -hmm. you know, this whole community. Um, so so reach out to us in Berkeley after reading all this stuff and, and then tell us about how this Chris Christie thing develops. It's just, yeah. Well, and, and so then from there, the logic is like, well, moving, you know, I, I probably should really think about moving to Berkeley and, you know, Chicago maybe is an intermediate thing. Um, but one thing that you can do kind of sometimes, no matter where you're at, is to kind of get, get media attention. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, one thing led to, you know, I'm just like having these kind of like long flowing tangential conversations. Like, I don't know what to do. What should I do? I want to do things. Okay. And then it gets floated to me like Chris Christie and, mm-hmm. um, terrifying and exciting and like no way i'm gonna say no to that if if the you know the, the folks that i'm so inspired by think it's a good idea like i'm gonna f- do what i can do to make it happen um so um what do you think in your background led you to say yes to that though because this is something that no one in dxc had even done before you know much less you personally having done this before yeah it's just, did you understand just the consequences. I mean, you've now, I think, been physically assaulted. You've been arrested. Have you been arrested at one of the presidential uh, disruptions? Oh, not not one of those. Okay. No, but, but you, otherwise, yeah. But I mean, <laughs> what what in your background made you open to that? Even yeah, I I mean, I think it's I don't know if it's like my background, but it, it just like the process of <laughs> I like the process of kind of getting really into animal rights and sort of I mean I don't know this is sounds pretentious to say just like logic but it's like i was very you know when i was growing mm. up i was you know my family is very religious god gave us animals mm. for food this sort of thing and i came to have different ideas about religion and you know you just see these th- you know it's just like how it just is not logical to you know like we're, we're eating animals that the you know you know like half of half of the logical fallacies that exist are in some way shape or form used to argue against uh animal rights 
and then it's you know from from there it's just like okay like let's just kind of follow this logical framework and let's try to like do the most impactful thing we can well reaching a million people or whatever seems like a pretty good thing to do and i'm just going to push myself to sort of follow follow that where it leads and um Let's yeah, that's, me. I mean, I've, I've had this view at various times, and honestly, I still have this view to some degree that the problem with animal rights is just that people aren't paying any attention to it because it's such an obviously correct position that if we can just get people talking about it, we'll win. And, and that's yeah. one of the operating kind of hypotheses of DXC, that let's get the, the issue on the table and then let's have that discussion. And so I guess that sounds like that's a reason you decided I'm going to jump on the stage of Chris Christie. Literally get this issue on the platform and, yeah and, 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 and the people that i admire so much like they're putting themselves out there in, in in ways that are just incredible and i mean look at it with you there was the uh the the stanford meet uh protest disruption demonstration and yeah i'm sure you want to you know explain the, the circumstances around that and and to me it's just so brave and, and courageous and just just incredible to, to see that sort of thing and it's like well if these people can, can you know can yeah. can do that sort of thing like i'm going to do what yeah, i can do it. and if i'm uniquely yeah. situated in iowa where i can you know make this other thing happen that they can't you know they don't have those opportunities in california then uh i you know it's, it's terrifying to do it but it's like very much more of a weight to just be like mm, yeah. you know to, to kind of back away from for an opportunity so what was the plan and what actually happened <clears throat> disruption oh uh, yeah it was it was pretty so you're gonna you're gonna bring a banner out i mean what did what did you have to do yeah to well we were uh yeah i mean we kind of wanted to put a question to him but we didn't think it was gonna happen and then i don't know if chris christie was not prepared on this particular day or what happened but he just runs out on stage he doesn't have any speech that he's trying to do he's like all right let's just do questions and so i'm like frantically texting like oh god what the you know what am i gonna say you know like i should yeah, i should do this and so i'm getting these and i'm trying and i'm like pissing my pants and i'm trying to like figure out Wait, you know did you what, literally piss your pants nah, I, okay. yeah <laughs> i mean i don't know maybe too much information d- yeah not not actually but okay. uh pretty close uh so anyway, you know, trying to like memorize a few lines or like whatever, like some sort of a, a question and then I jotted down in my notes and, you know, it, it basically worked out. I got, I got kind of some prompts here and I raised my hand and I'm terrified and I'm stuttering a little bit, but I read off my thing on the Oh, that's phone. right. You actually did Good ask question. a question yeah, first. Yeah. So you actually, you were right in the front and you asked yeah. a question. I totally forgot about it. Yep. Yeah. What did, you, what did you ask him? Well, and so it was, uh, you know, we're trying to sort of, you know, we we weren't looking to focus on the gestation crate thing. That sure. was just, but that was kind of what was in the media. Uh, but it was uh, sort of tying t- together. So there was this this dog that I lived with, my roommate's dog mm-hmm. named Webby, and it's just like saying like this dog, you know, mm-hmm. like what this dog means to me and the emotions that this dog has. Yeah. And it's like, but if this dog was born a pig, you would want to torture and kill this individual. And uh, right about there is when our good friend uh, jumped in and uh, started talking louder to me. Yeah. Uh, which so cut then you we off. then we grabbed the yeah then we grabbed the banner and jumped up on the stage and got uh, dragged off and uh you know but yeah made a made a big media splash yeah, that's for national sure. media it was like on cnn i think it was yeah a bunch yeah. of national media bunch of, yeah yeah bunch of them. so what did you think afterwards and what happened afterwards so you you jump on stage you pull your banner out so you ask the question he thinks it's a normal question then you he continue on and ask a question in a way he doesn't like he cuts you off yeah you jump go on stage there. pull out the banner and then you get dragged off yeah the sheriff drags us off and we didn't know if if we were getting arrested or what, we just knew that we're not saying anything to the cops, and uh, yeah. and they they let us go, which felt <laughs> felt like we were really getting away with something here. Like, <laughs> what? 
did you, we got to get out of here before a supervisor, like these people need to go to prison for a while. Like, how could you just, how could you just hijack the airwaves for three seconds? That's just what, um, yeah, there's, it's weird how ordinary people who are not activists have this terrifying fear of disruption, even disruption that is protected first amendment activity. Yeah. Cause even jumping on the stage, I mean, depending on what kind of signs they had and where, whether they clarified this is you know, only private access, that might not have been any legal violation at all. Right. And, but even speaking, you know, yeah. loudly is considered terrifying by so many folks. And this is back in a time when the animal rights, but I used to get, I'm an attorney and back in 2012, 2013, and probably all the way into 2015, I was still getting very regular questions from people about whether leafleting could be something that would lead to a criminal offense and whether I could be charged as an animal terrorist Nearly yep. for leafletting. So that's kind of where the movement was. And and then here you are, and here's this DXE movement doing things like jumping on the stage. But Well, and people in Iowa, I mean, folks folks in Iowa in particular with the yeah, laws that have been passed recently, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, but I, f- I feel like, you know, depending on what what you're paying attention to, you can sort of, you know, there's arguments to be made in, in both directions because Iowa is passing laws left and right and, and two laws and two ag-ag laws in particular that were in direct response to our work in Iowa. Um, but at the same time, we are... Now, not in direct response to this protest, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. This is context. Yeah. So this is work that's been done in the future in Iowa, including the stuff that happened last year. Exactly, but, exactly. But go ahead, yeah. continue your point. Yeah, and, and, and uh, so, so folks are... Um, you know, understandably scared of that. Um, and I think we, you know, certainly want to have people have realistic expectations and understand the risks that they're taking. And I think at the same time, uh, you know, understand the power that we have when it's something like, you know, these, these uh, two uh, trials that, that never happened with, with uh, myself and with Cheyenne Holiday and an activist in Iowa uh, in relation to, to this ventilation shutdown expose. And, yeah, last minute, um, Iowa Select Farms decides they don't want to show up in both instances. They don't want to publicly testify against us for as, you know, as much as they want to throw the book at us, for as much as they get the FBI involved yeah. and, you know, felony charges and, and all the rest. Um, when it comes down to it, it's, you know, oftentimes it's, it's kind of a facade. Sometimes people get thrown in prison. Don't, don't minimize that, but uh, no, you got to sure. try to take a no, realistic one of the One of the most expert moves by the industry and and by other oppressive systems is teaching us to be well behaved when we yeah. don't have to be. Yeah. And like a lot of people don't know this. I mean, we, we know that King was in jail, Martin Luther King Jr. That is, but in the initial protest at a Woolsworth in Greensboro, North Carolina, those kids, I mean, they were doing something that was incredibly disruptive for sure. And, and frankly illegal when they sat down at the white lunch counter at a Woolsworth but they actually weren't arrested for a long time. They just kind of sat there in the owners of the store because the criminal justice system, the legal system is something that oppressive systems that are working don't actually have to use their power very much because they mm-hmm. just scare everyone into being well-behaved. And that certainly what was what happened to people of color in this country because of Jim Crow and because of everything that happened in the post-reconstruction era. Just people were terrified of yep. stepping out of line. And... You know, and again, even when they weren't going to get arrested. Um, and, and of course, there were a lot of people who served jail time. There were a lot of people killed in the civil rights movement and other social justice movements. The women's suffrage movement, lots of people were beaten up and arrested. But the first barrier they had to overcome before they overcame these most serious charges was just the psychological barrier of doing something that other people have taught you is, is bad. 
it's mm-hmm. unacceptable. And 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 yeah. you know, oh, we and overcame that with a bang back in 2015 with those protests for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, what were you feeling like afterwards? So, you you get out of jail. Did you think the protest was a success right after? Well, or well we, did, we were we were held for all. We were we didn't okay. go to jail, but um, yeah, I I thought so. I mean, this it's such a you know we we've come so far uh, that it uh. Uh, you know it, like we got a bunch of press attention, and that was mm-hmm. like kind of as far as it went. And people were all over my Facebook, and it felt like we yeah it, you know was, was a big thing. And this is what early 2016 or late 2015. So, Chris Christie would have been, uh, I think, August 2015, 2015. Iowa State Fair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is after our first open rescue. So this is also one of the first instances of national media coverage. And we had one big story prior to this, which was in January 2015. We had a big expose of a Whole Foods egg farm, which is the first time anyone, I think, had ever investigated a Whole Foods supplier. But media attention was something very new for us and for the animal rights movement, I think, and especially the grassroots animal rights movement back in 2015. Yeah, I think, and I think it's something that people, uh, you know, mistakenly believe about about uh, about DXC, or you know, I guess you know people are got a lot of distractions in this day and age, so maybe you know people don't understandably yeah. get a really nuanced perspective on everything. But um, you know, I think that uh, you know, at a certain point in a movement's evolution or an organization's ev- evolution, then that is kind of just you know, more so in the direction of, uh, all press is good press, not literally true, but, but closer to being true. Uh, you know, and then there's, you know, in certain contexts, obviously you, you want to, you know, try to win an election, try to get elected mayor and try Mm -hmm. to like push through various laws and, and, and so on. Um, yeah, but certain, but I think at, at the time, you know, right or wrong, I guess my, my, my perception was quite positive of it. And, and that outcome, in it, you know, is worth a, worth a lot in and of itself, you know, having activists yeah. feel good about, not that you want people to believe things that aren't true, but uh, certainly having activists feel inspired right, and awesome yeah. about the work they're doing is, is a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I think in this case, like, like I said, this is one of the presidential disruptions that I was pretty supportive of because Chris Christie was just such a good villain. And one of the things you have to do whenever you're trying to create change is you've got to have inspiring protagonists you know i mean this is part of what we do just good storytelling where we're telling the story of people like you a a former iowan truck driver who becomes an animal rights activist disrupting presidential candidates who are trying to oppress animals and disregard the will of his own voters and people like lewis you know former hunter who thinks he's doing the right thing and transitions 180 degrees from killing animals to literally breaking into farms and rescuing them but to tell those stories really well it's kind of like any good comic book movie he's got to be a bad guy too and chris christie mm-hmm. was just an incredibly good bad guy because yeah. he just looks kind of malevolent he's he sneers at everyone he's incredibly rude oh yeah and even people on the right wing don't like him he was one of donald trump's best buddies back when republicans didn't like donald trump and things <laughs> changed a lot since 2016 obviously but back in 2016 even the republican party was against him you know, oh yeah people oh, like the way Jeb he- bush and chris christie was one of the few people who you know when when, when he left the race, which was pretty early on. So in the early stages, yeah. I think people thought he was a very realistic presidential yeah. candidate. They thought, you know, this guy might be the next president of the United States. But I don't even know. I don't remember exactly why. But he dropped out pretty early. and he Low energy. He yeah, low energy. Get Maybe you. that was it. Got to get your Starbucks going. But he just jumped into bed with Donald Trump really early. And, and so he was a great villain for us because he was just kind of such a scumbag. Hmm. But, nah. but, you know, some of the subsequent ones, Bernie in particular, I was less fond of. How did your how did your family respond to this? 
Oh yeah, they must have heard about. Well, it, this obviously. is well, th- this is, so. This is a the, you know this misnomer that I think people have uh-huh. uh, that it's like as you go quote unquote more extreme that you know you just assume that people close to you are going to uh, you know be pushed away and you know I guess extreme encompasses a whole lot of things. But I think uh, well c- certainly my experience and I think representative of this sort of work is that people take what you're doing a lot more, more seriously, seriously yeah. right? And when it's when you're when I mean. Nobody looks at ventilation shutdown, and as as we now know, Iowa Select Farm's own employees, uh, workers are saying, you know, this is something that really nobody is okay with. Yeah. And so, when I'm exposing something like that, and I'm facing charges, yeah, like that, yeah. <laughs> You're jumping ahead now a couple of years, but back when Chris Christie happened, oh, sh- you know, oh yeah, this yeah, is, yeah, ventilation shutdown is something Matt did. Earlier in 2020, this is yeah. this horrible practice I that I want to get into, but I, yeah, I was but, but in Chris Christie. You jump on the stage, you know, people are making fun of you on social media and saying, who is this lunatic? I mean, I saw yeah. so much negative stuff, but your family response positive? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess and I was Your kind family's of, pretty conservative. Yeah. You know, your dad's like a gun-toting Republican. Was he a Trump supporter? Uh, yeah. He's okay. Jehovah's Witness, so Jehovah's no, no official voting. You just, you ah, just, he's you not just a talk about it all day, every day, and then don't vote. That's how they get you. <laughs> there you go. That's the, the loophole. But, I mean- so your family, I mean, how do they respond? Uh, yeah, yeah. I guess I, so I was kind of looping together sort of all the all the DXC work I've done. Um, but yeah, I mean, that one specifically um, how did Trump would have respond? been more... Um, Trump math. I mean, Trent, yeah. yeah my, well, you know, my brother, he's he's more of the class clown than I was historically. He's he's calmed down <laughs> a little bit over the past few years. But uh, yeah. Um, so you just thought it was funny. He, Yeah, I mean, pe- people like, got a kick out of it. And I mean, I, I think... There wasn't that much discussion about it because, you know, people do have, you know, they just think that it's going to be moralizing, you know, like I'm going to be like preaching to them or something like that. So they just kind of and and I yeah, there are better ways to talk about it than I used to be, uh, you know, disrupting family Thanksgivings. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, at the time it it was more so a thing that we we don't talk about. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's evolved over time and uh, they they're certainly a fan of. uh, well, my, my dad was delighted that we disrupted Bill Clinton. He's like, oh, did you really? I was oh. like, oh, my God. He's like, Dad, let me show you. See, and I did you. Dad was just gleeful. That's funny. Like, it didn't even matter what word came out of my mouth. It was just like something that <laughs> sort of embarrasses Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton is yeah. like the highlight of his year. Uh-huh. Um, Why does he not like Bill Clinton? Just because he's a Democrat? or just Yeah, something? I mean... Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a truck driver who likes his AM radio, so there what do you, you do? Huh. Okay. <laughs> So your family is is like curious, kind of entertained, and more willing to kind of listen to what you have to say after you do this disruption that makes the national news. Did they see it? Did they actually see it? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, as soon as there was one, you know, there kind of they was like several all. of them, and, and then yeah. and then yeah, it, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that there's you know as much as you know you can I guess see like a clip on Fox News and you say like all oh, these protesters, you know, mm-hmm. you just really have a negative interpretation, but that's like, Oh, that's, that's my, son. my son out there. And, yeah, and it, I mean, that's, things. yeah. And it's, it, then you just are like, shit, like that takes some doing that, you know, not everybody yeah. just wakes up in the morning and does that. And he got some media attention. So like the, the conviction of it, um, you know, to the extent, like you mentioned, you know, if it has to be conviction that's sort of projected as coming off in, in rationality, which sure. my parents are going to know me a lot better than a random Fox yeah. news viewer. Are so they can't to... caricature as just some wacko. Exactly. They, they, yeah. they know that there's a reason behind. Well, it's still all the rest of them. Everyone else is paid by George Soros other than literally go. myself. Just you. Every yeah, left you're the activist. one exception. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I th- there's this concept of social proof. I was just listening to a podcast with Robert Saldini, who's a very famous social psychologist who wrote this book called Influence, and he has these six principles of persuasion. One of them is social proof. And the idea behind it is it's essentially that all ideas, when they're novel, are hard to convince people of. Yep. And once you see a certain critical mass of people doing something, then suddenly something that previously seemed, oh, I don't believe this at all, becomes self-evident and obvious. Yep. And that's that's kind of what happens in social movements, that you get people saying these things, sometimes aggressively, sometimes not aggressively. And it creates this social momentum behind it that then convinces people. And everyone always thinks they're convinced by the own internal yep. logic, but I mean, we're, we're social animals. Yep. And I'm sure your parents have. But one of the ways that happens, too, is it's social proof isn't, you know, all social proof isn't equal. What, what is most powerful for me is when someone I personally know, like someone in my network, and, and this is definitely true with the LGBTQ movement, when it was one thing when you saw Ellen coming out. It was a totally different thing your when neighbor. it was your neighbor yeah. or, or your daughter. Yep. You know, there's that Republican senator in Ohio. I forget his name now. Or even Dick Cheney. I mean, Dick Cheney is an example of this. Like Dick Cheney is this malevolent figure on the right. I mean, we hate him because all the lies he told me Iraq war, you know. He's in bed with the fossil fuel companies and he's destroying our planet. But his daughter's gay. And it's one of the reasons he Got was him. one of the first Republicans to come out and say, you know, I'm in support of gay marriage. I think mm. he was in support of gay marriage maybe even before Obama was. Obama didn't come <laughs> Obama around was until evolving. Like 2014. He's, yeah, or something he's, like, he's that. like a million years of Darwinian you know, evolution. <laughs> he's evolving. I don't know. Hard to say, 50-50. Yeah. Obama, 2011, this gay marriage thing could break either way. Yeah, well, I mean, if he had a daughter who was gay, he'd probably feel differently, and I'm sure your parents felt differently. And he'd have not, yeah, I he mean, have got the second term. So tell me more about, because your parents knew you were an animal rights supporter, mm. and they knew this since you were like five, right? Your, yeah. Your journey towards animal rights is pretty unique, because most of us, like, the indoctrination of our society sinks in pretty early and pretty deep, and, and that was true of me. I mean, I was a huge meteor. I mean, it's... Hard for people to believe now, but like I was almost on a, a carnivore diet for most of my life until I ran animal liberation and became an animal rights activist. You had a very different life. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, there. I, I wish I could like Groundhog's Day in my life and see two versions of it because yeah. the version of it that existed and I kind of wonder like what, what caused what. Um, what happened, I'm four years old and the conception of eating animals was not, I had no conception that that was happening. And I'm not exactly sure if like there's a thing that called like chicken shows up on my plate and I didn't like know there was an animal or exactly what it was. But I just knew that up until this fateful day, I didn't know that, uh, that there was, you know, eating animals was a thing. And then, um, I had, uh, two of my uncles were having a conversation and I'm up at my grandparents' house and it's like a whole, you know, big family gathering and they're kind of standing behind me and having this, little just you know brosy kind of chat and i'm sitting there and i literally have a dinner roll in front of me and a deer flesh aka venison uh chunk in the middle of it which has one bite out of it and then i'm hearing them behind me have this conversation and they're talking about hunting and killing deer and turning it into food and so i piece it together sort of in that moment but i was still like Hmm. what is that that am I, that can't be right type of thing and then i went talk to my mom and i'm like hey is this deer is that what's you know and then um yeah i mean if, uh, that was at that point i just told my parents you know i didn't know the word vegan or vegetarian yeah. or even meat wasn't so it was it was and i think this is a, a telling thing that it was i told my parents i don't want to eat animals hmm. like and that was like the whole thing 
Um, had your uncles actually killed that deer? Had they hunted that particular deer that you were eating that? Um, among the the family, among they the you family. know they have like a, they have a whole slaughterhouse set up, and they you know bring in ten at a time or whatever, and so it's a whole thing. Um, yeah, and I, I think you know what what I, what I was saying is is curious just to see if it was you know if I had if the coincidence of my life had been that I like sort of found out in a different context yeah, that I did, that didn't shake me as much. Like maybe I'd have been like more eased into it and I would have not been a domestic terrorist as an adult. Uh, but uh, cause, and then there was another, another thing that happened shortly thereafter where they're, they had killed a deer and they had this deer strung up in the shed outside of the house mm. and they took the deer and this was around Christmas time, painted the deer's nose red and, yeah, hey Matthew, come out to the shed, blah blah blah, and then it's like, here's this dead animal with a red nose, yeah. and I didn't think for a second this was Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, but what I thought right away was that like this is this is brutal. monstrous, you yeah. know, yeah. Um, and it it was just completely vivid for me from day one that this this isn't quite as clean cut as what I was being told that God gave us animals for food, and yeah. I mean I even well intentioned. One relative in particular who told me, if you don't eat meat, you'll die. Mm. And so, but I, even at like whatever age I was at that point, like five or six, I'm kind of like, um, mm. kind of calling her bluff a little bit. Like, yeah. you didn't say that the way you would say it to somebody if they were dying in front of right, you. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to like wait and see if I start to feel like I'm dying a little bit. Maybe yeah. I, maybe the energy bar gets down to like 30% and then I'll be like, okay, uh, let's, re- let's reconsider. Yeah. Uh, so far, so good. Yeah. And your parents were supportive when you did this and said, I'm just not going to eat animals? Uh, varied. I mean, it, there, was, there was times when they, they, I mean, it was, it was very difficult for me and very shameful and in not an intentional way. Um, kind yeah. of like they, they were not intending to be hurtful. They were, would, uh, we'd be hanging out at a family gathering or something like that or a social setting and they'll be like, oh, he won't eat anything. No chicken, mm-hmm. no beef, you know. And it's not, you know, you just have to, you know, they're just, they're like loud, boisterous people. Like, they're really not coming at me. They're just kind of... Explaining it and saying, it's, yeah, it's, isn't like, this interesting? My kid's a little bit different. Yeah, and, but it had a very negative effect on me in terms of how that goes. And you know what was interesting? If people, so, so people should listen to your podcast with Glenn, uh, mm-hmm. which is to- it's just good, completely on its own merits. But I thought what was interesting about that, to be the oblivious white man in the room, real quick, I'm good at that. There you go. Uh, is that you and Glenn talked about you had this sort of common experience of uh, hardship as children and that that's horrible in plenty of ways. Uh, Glenn's growing up as closeted gay and you were the only Asian kid in this all-white school in Indiana and you got bullied. I was a fat Asian kid in a place that everyone cared about football. Yeah. And I feel like my experience was like a you know considerably Similar. less severe but the same sort of dynamic there honestly i don't know i mean being a vegan in iowa surrounded by hunters it might have been worse yeah. in some ways i mean it sounds yeah. awful even just like the way was, you described it as a, especially as a child you know yeah yeah my family never made fun of me i mean it was like kids at school but i could come home and there would be a safe place like for you i imagine it was hard because it, this is your family the people are caring for you telling you yeah, this, this thing that you've decided. I mean, yeah. Like, was there anybody he was supportive? They, I mean, you know, my mom. When I would talk to her in person, there'd be, you know, she'd be like, "I think that's just." It was, it was like a, a sentimental warmth. She was like, oh. "That's so great that you care so much about animals that you won't oh. even, you know." Okay. Um, so you know, I mean, just 
great and very good intentions, you know, and uh, just it, it's a very uh, situation they were not prepared for. I didn't really know what to do with and that sort of thing. So, but it was, it was a lot of, you know, just eating. Like I just basically tried to never be around anybody when I eat because they're going to like notice what I'm eating and what I'm not wow. eating. And they're going to ask questions yeah. and I don't know what to say. Like nobody else is doing this weird thing that I'm doing and I'm a kid and I'm defying God and I'm probably unhealthy and yeah. you know, all this too. So like, what did you do at school? Uh, so, so I would get a lunch pail and I would, uh, and I, there are fr- people who sat next to me at lunch, like, you know, for a whole big portion of my kindergarten through yeah. high school that sat like hundreds of times, maybe a thousand times, I don't know, over those years and they didn't, didn't piece together that wow. I don't eat yeah. animal flesh. No, I mean, our experiences are pretty similar. I mean, because I was, I mean, I, I literally would hide in bathrooms from people because I'd get bullied and... You know, the mornings, lunchtime, after school, and even the breaks between periods of class, other kids would be socializing. I didn't have anyone to socialize with, so I'd go and hide in the bathroom. And I'd go in the bathroom stalls and just always pretend I was just very constipated, just <laughs> stuck in the bathroom. Which is way better. And so, yeah. but no, I mean, it's... Even like, though that's it's, kind of embarrassing in gay, itself. And, and Glenn was obviously hiding the fact that he was gay. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I wonder if there's something to that, that I, a lot of people who are activists have been hiding something for a long time and have been overcoming this fear of of something about themselves they can't just admit and then mm-hmm. when they overcome that it gives them the rest of the world confidence and yeah the rest of life seems easy you know yeah. glenn it was coming out in the 19 i think it was the early 1990s yeah. like he came out in the aids pandemic yep oh like, and man the state talk seem, about guts yeah and this that's yeah. fucking terrifying yeah like everyone's gonna think you're like literally a monster that could hurt them just by your physical presence it yeah. came out and I imagine coming out as vegetarian in the middle of Iowa, which for those of you who don't know, Iowa, I think we're still not sure about this, but it's either the number one or number two pig farming state in the nation, right? Oh, it's, it's number, number one, one in pig one. farming. It's okay. yeah, between, I'm not sure if it's number one in overall, I think it is number one in overall animal agriculture, but yeah, yeah lots of, lots of factory farms in so Iowa. So did anybody know that you're a vegetarian? It was like my other than family and a couple, yeah, I mean, just like had a close family. Yeah, that was, that was really it. How um, did your friends not know? Did you have um, friends? I mean, yeah, like <laughs> I, or, yeah, I got like a, like a few close friends, and I, I just like tried to not talk about it. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was it was bizarre. Um, but uh, yeah, I I think that it it just abs- yeah just you know it's <laughs> when when th- things are happening like nowadays in my in my life, and I feel like I'm you know to go back to what you're talking about earlier, like I yeah. have this just extremely purposeful existence that is i mean it you know as much as i sit here at the felony charges and whatever it is also like a dream job just Mm -hmm. in turn like if you are just can just like give yourself wholly to something that you just believe in a thousand percent i mean that's that's a gift best feeling in the world to have that yeah Yeah. absolutely and so but yeah it it does it does feel like when when people talk about like the stakes like the negative like it yeah it, it hits other people a lot more severely to say like what if you are in jail for a year? Like, like okay, yeah. well, I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully it sounds like it's going to do good things for the movement and get some good press out there, you know, yeah, whatever, that sort of thing. In many ways, it's not as bad as being a closeted vegan or vegetarian. Were you vegan or vegetarian? Yeah. You're probably vegetarian, Veget- right? Yeah, vegetarian, yeah. I had a lot of... What, what did your friends think, the friends who did know? Did they say anything? Um, they- I like a little bit. Um, I mean, I... I you know, I mean, sometimes, you know, I would just get like backed into it and I, it would, you know, say, I mean, I, don't, I think 
people have have, a, have like a sense that, that they're wrong. <laughs> uh, it, huh. it, but it is weird how much it just really was not talked about that much okay. um, amongst my friends. I would just like mention it and then and that would be the they kind of vibed that I was yeah. just like, I just didn't want to go there. Um, yeah. Did you have Very a big strange. social circle when you were growing up or was it? I mean, I imagine it was big, you know, I mean, you um, seem like such a social guy. Yeah. I mean, friends that I was like close to was, was pretty small. Oh, yeah. Okay, so how do you go from there to animal rights consciousness, or well, what's the shift? Was there a book you read, or a video, or was it that moment when you saw Glenn Alexander? That, uh, like, you know, I mean, you were already uh, vegan then, so obviously you had at least uh, gone the transition from vegetarian to vegan. How you evolve from there to being an animal rights activist, like this, this moment of awakening, because you're a vegetarian at four, your friends are looking at you like you're kind of funny, you're hiding your food at school. I mean, did you literally just kind of cover your food up and eat? Or- oh, yeah. It would be, well, those ones that are like kind of like a soft side hid, like insulated oh. cooler thing. You just like pop the top up there. You reach inside, pull off a little piece of your, your sandwich cheese or sandwich or your peanut butter jelly sandwich. And then just straight, yeah. you know, there you go. So you never ate? Yeah. You never bought lunch? Yeah, no, basically never. never. Yeah, because you're not going like to. You can't pizza. find vegetarian food in very Rarely, yeah. yeah. Sometimes there'd be a cheese pizza day and I was really excited about cheese pizza and I'd like kind of come come out of the come out of the, the, the cave a little bit and be like okay i'm gonna you know, maybe they won't catch on that it was just on cheese pizza day that i got the hot lunch like one one percent of the time or something you know funny thing i it's it's weird that i'm admitting this but as a 40 year old vegan animal rights activist i still have these weird moments of wistfulness about school lunch and how delicious i thought it was and everybody thinks school lunch is gross and uh, it is kind of gross but i used to get because they're super cheap right mm-hmm. they're like back when i was in school it's like a dollar twenty for full lunch. You can get three of them, mm-hmm. and they're just packed with crap that I yep. loved eating, like cheeseburgers and sausage pizza and all this crazy and stuff. I, uh, yeah. and you never had any of that. I don't know. Yeah, well, I don't have that on food, mm. fishing. Every huh. time my dad, my dad was a was a truck driver. Like, actually, I, I sat down and had this. I was just like thinking about this. So I talked to him, but between my birth and my high school graduation, he probably averaged six point five days a week. Uh, you know, just working, uh, you know, probably more, you know, more than that. Um, whenever he had, five days a week of what working? Oh, driving truck. Yeah. Okay. Driving and then truck, 0.5 like 10, days 10. of fishing. Uh, it's so yeah. Yeah. So, so basically anytime he had a day off, you know, uh, with rare exceptions, it would be like me and my dad and my brother and, you know, maybe one of his so wait, friends wait, 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 wait. go fishing. You, you're, you're not willing uh, to eat animals, but you fish animals. Yeah. There, so, uh, so how does that work? So yeah, I, I was definitely the catch and release okay. uh, representative, and and I remember I read in Field and Stream or Outdoor Life or one of these magazines, and there was this this explicit question was brought up about fish sentience, yeah. and it said that fish have poorly developed sensory, yeah. you know, yada yada, and it's just basically just instinct, and you know, yeah. So you, they're I not. I kind as... of bought it. I kind of you know, it's there's obviously a certain pressure to fit sure. in and, and, and it was like fun and now when i drive by a lake or a river i'm like you still have my brain feeling. goes yeah, into like yeah, oh absolutely. there's that drop off it's gonna go deep right there that's where the bass <laughs> are gonna be hanging out it's like those are like you know i like how you're wild. wistful about fishing and i'm wistful about school lunch yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's just yeah no i mean the I, I i definitely remember a time when and honestly i hate to admit this but i still feel this way to some degree so for example occasionally i've had to give my cats various animal products because they're on a prescription diet and I've actually specifically asked my vet, can I give them fish? You know, and it's, Lewis is looking at me funny, like, what's wrong with you? Mm. He's judging me, or they're judging me right now. But I've actually asked them that. And I, mm. I don't even think about it. I just say that. 
and for the record, those of you who don't know, the evidence on fish sentience is overwhelming. Like we, it's very, very clear they have the same sort of nociception system, which is the pain system that we have. They have social connections. They have memories of particular individuals, social pairings in the same way. I'm sure there's different sort of attributes that different fish have, but there's no question that fish are sentient and conscious and actually have very sophisticated like emotional lives. But even as an animal rights activist, like my first instinct is, you know, like I'd kind of prefer if I have to, I'd prefer to hit a fit, hurt a fish mm-hmm. to a mammal. Like there's something about hurting mammals and just probably birds too. And, and would yeah. you give it up? Uh, that was like when I went, went vegan. vegan. Yeah. So it was, yeah. Um, and what, what was, when was that and what, what caused it? I don't actually even know um, the Yeah. I mean, it would have been, uh, it was like 2013. So that's like fairly. Oh shit. That's not that long of, ago. Yeah. yeah. That's like. After DXE started, DXE started in late 2012. Yeah, kind of. yeah, yeah, no, it's um. Well, I was pretty, pretty thoroughly over religion and and sort of being inspired and thinking that I can actually do something about something. And uh, yeah, I mean, pretty yeah, right, right. With veganism came no, no more of this uh, fishing stuff. Huh. And what was the cause? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it was pretty much the internet you know <laughs> like okay. the cause of and, and solution to and so many problems uh yeah between like yeah well before the before the 2 a.m dxc encounter was the uh you know gary yarovsky encounter and just yep, yep. The, like the the logical i mean some like terrible like windows 95 website that's like yeah. the logical arguments of veganism and mm-hmm. it's just like oh yeah huh. I mean, and you like kind of know it, but you when you really see it like laid down, like all like how empty all these you know rationalizations are. Um, yeah. So I mean, people always give logical reasons for why they transition to animal rights or veganism. Mm-hmm. I I do the same thing. I say, oh, yeah. that animal liberation, the arguments were so compelling, right? But, but then yeah, you look at the some... research, and you always it always is other yeah. things like social contagion, you know, emotion, storytelling personal experiences and so i just wonder how much of it was actually those websites and how much of it was something else that was going on in your life like did you have you didn't have any social influences because you didn't know any vegans right yeah no i did not and i mean i think that um yeah i i i I think like if i would have felt like i had a little more to lose i guess uh like i um yeah, I went to college, but I, I just wasn't that inspired by it. I got an accounting degree with like a 3.0 or, two, you know, whatever. There, you know, not an impressive GPA. That, and I yeah. wasn't really inspired at all. I wasn't at all inspired to do accounting. But I was, you know, like for the money. And then I went to the military, which was enormously also less I totally than forgot you were in the military. Yeah. So that's that's completely absurd that you went from being in the military to being all right. Well, I went from being in the military to being a highly suspect animal rights activist so who's here. Okay. A chance he's an infiltrator. Not, now I'm figuring this out. This is the tie between you, me, Glenn, and a lot of people who come animal rights activists. It's going through massive failures in life. <laughs> no, seriously, like big crises. I think that's part of it. So but in 2013, by that point, you graduated from college in what, late 2000s? Uh, so yeah, college uh, was uh, December 2008. 2008. And you go in the military right after? And uh, yeah, the military was shortly thereafter. What the hell after. were you doing in the military? <laughs> oh, well, worst time. I mean, I just, not, not, you busing. know. Well, it was, it, well, I was getting Not to judge bonus. anyone who's been in the military, maybe oh, a little bit. I was but getting paid. I just think it's weird that you were in the military because you're yeah. super anti-war, you're I mean, yeah, I, I was I was uh, getting my my college experience paid for paid is what for, I was okay. doing. Yeah, and I mean, it, you know, two thousand eight worst possible time to be trying to 
get yeah. a job in general. Sure. And so kind of, uh, you know, uh, in the middle of, you know, crisis, but, you know, in the middle of crisis comes opportunity to some extent. Because like, say I found a career that I loved and it was like a better time in the job market. I got some good paying job right out of the gate. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. probably not. I'm not, well, I'm sure not going to go into the military. And yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, that animal rights movement has, um, you know, kind of, it's, it's unfortunate because so many people are just feel like they have too much to lose. Like really sure. bright, accomplished yeah. people have careers and have social mm-hmm. lives yeah. that think that animal rights is weird. And it's like, uh, you know, Jay Schuster, mm-hmm. uh, who's uh, this, this animal rights lawyer, awesome guy, talks about how, you know, so many like, you know, to, to be crude or have the best and brightest people kind of realize that community organizing is how we get the change that we want in the world. Yeah. But so many of them kind of just don't do it because it's really hard and you get called a cult leader and you get subjected to like the most obscene, you know, but that's, what's also very inspiring and getting me involved, you know, Mm -hmm. which is something that this should, should be talked about here is, I mean, this kind of goes into the, the, the mayoral campaign, but even, you know, far predates that is just, just, the onslaught of like negativity towards you throughout mm-hmm. the entirety of, of me knowing you is just, it's just shocking. It is just so unbelievable. And it is so contrary to like the person I've gotten to know, um, you know, whether, you know, some combination of jealousy and politics and racism and like whatever it is, um, there's just been, so much of that that's come your way, and it's uh, a well, real. I'm, just, I'm a lightning rod for the movement because I'm a public figure, and I think so many people, including yourself, go through a microcosm of that. So when Jay Schuster says it's pretty hard for people to give up a nice legal career and become animal rights activists, it's because they go through a miniature version of that. Yeah, you know, in their own little community, and I've just done that to a certain extent on the national level. You know, where you've got animal agriculture websites with Wikipedia. I mean, not Wikipedia, but just encyclopedias of activists where I'm featured, where I'm on the front page of CCS website and the Center for Organization Research and Education. These are these really anti-animal rights organizations mm-hmm. and because they're reflecting these cultural patterns and these power structures that really don't want change and will yeah. try and destroy anyone who tries to create change. But you know, one of the things I think people don't get is, and this is one of the reasons why I don't get mad when someone like you know, Richard Berman, who's the head of CCF, is <laughs> literally trying to destroy my life and put me in prison. Yeah. Because Good friend. These, these things are systemic. And the reason I know they're systemic is because that same pattern replicates itself organically across the nation in low-level interactions. You know, what happened mm-hmm. with you when you're a kid in high school who's afraid to tell people you're vegetarian. It, you know, Crystal's sitting next to me. Crystal, for those of you who don't know, is a veterinarian who's faced a massive amount of backlash in the veterinary industry, an industry where in theory they're supposed to be caring for animals and merely for saying, you know, I kind of think animals have rights. You might think a veterinarian would be able to say that, but actually, <laughs> no, no, you can't. Yeah. Because if you say a vet, an animal has rights as a veterinarian, suddenly you're calling out like 30% of your colleagues who mm-hmm. work for the same industry. So, mm-hmm. like, oh, and, the, so, and, then, and then a few months later, the industry is putting out all yeah, sorts all of these, press releases. Like, saying nobody wants terrorist. to get hired. Well, yeah. well, no, those, it's are, awful. Those, those press releases of saying Crystal is a terrorist. No, absolutely. And then the other press releases saying nobody wants to be a large animal vet anymore. What yeah. the heck's going on? No, no, absolutely. So, but the, the point I'm making is it's, you could say this is because Richard Berman is distinctly evil, and I just don't think that's the case. Richard Berman is a product of the system that is trying to protect itself. And 
and and you know when we get mad at and everybody has this experience when you're an animal rights activist and frankly as other activists too whether you're an environmental activist racial justice activist you think why don't they get it and the reason they don't get it is probably because there's decades or maybe hundreds or thousands of years in the animal rights movement's case it's arguably tens or hundreds of thousands of years of indoctrination that you were fighting against mm -hmm. imagine you have a community of people like the human species that for 250,000 years has been taught that it is our right to exterminate all the other living creatures. This is what we've been mm -hmm. doing. And this is controversial and a lot of people disagree with this, mm -hmm. but it's my view that you look at all the continents of the world other than Africa, all the big animals are gone. It's because even before the inception of agriculture, 10,000 years ago, we were hunting them all down and making them go extinct. Yeah. Right. And this isn't just me saying this for the record. There's a lot of really compelling science. So, you know, when people say it's capitalism that's the root of all animal exploitation, I say, no, go back, you know, 15, 20,000 years ago and, and ask the woolly mammoth, ask, you yeah. know, the big cats, ask the, the dodo. I mean, the dodo was made extinct much more recently, but all these big animals that were like the largest animals in their ecosystem and came across this hairless ape that was very small and doesn't have claws. And they thought, no, you're not a problem. Except we were. We got these tools mm -hmm. and we hunted them all down. And... Um, and when you have tens of thousands of years of that experience where human beings go around killing everything, exterminating all these species, and it becomes a part of a culture and even our evolution, I actually think there's probably things, this is controversial too, there's some research suggesting that cruelty is actually in our genes. That there is a certain, I mean, there's definitely empathy. There's, yeah. It's like there's this duality to the human consciousness where on the one hand, we have the ability to be compassionate. We have these big frontal lobes that the front of your brain has evolved to be able to imagine what it's like to be another human being or an animal. But we also have this appetite for violence. That's a little terrifying. Yeah. You know, this is why people like watching MMA. This is like why people like doing jujitsu. You know, I said this like one probably you leave Joe Rogan alone. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Rogan is an example of this. This is, I mean, for those of you who don't know who Joe Rogan is, he's a big podcast host, and I feel they like... They know who Joe Rogan is. Okay. I, think, I mean, I honestly didn't know who Joe Rogan was that much until you introduced me to his podcast and were telling me all about him. But I think... I, you might correct me. The two people at the table, like, I think about 50% of his podcasts are MMA podcasts. Is that right? Is it 50%? I think in the past, maybe more so, but no, no okay, lately, he's, he's a big deal now. I mean, he does lots of other interesting stuff. Like, I was just listening to a podcast where he has an evolutionary biologist on, another podcast where he had an expert on aging, but... He's, he's like a martial artist who's, I think that's he became famous. Thing. That's his personal. Yeah. And he became, I think he became famous because he's an MMA commentator. Isn't that yeah. part Where, of, that's why he's famous. Because the UFC got big and he got he big too. He was also on Fear Factor, I think. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he was. He but was, he wasn't that big before MMA. No. Yeah, I think MMA is part of what got him big. Because MMA is huge now. It's like bigger than boxing. And like mm -hmm. Conor McGregor, I mean, I know who Conor McGregor is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't watch anything and I, I barely, I don't even have a TV and it's just, I have a TV. I just don't watch TV and I know Conor McGregor is. So, but, but that, that there's a reason for that because there's this appetite for violence that human beings have. And it, it, and that does change the way you think of activism. Cause if you think human beings are, are just inherently compassionate, and I do think we are inherently compassionate, but I also think there's probably a genetic basis for an appetite for violence. Yeah. And I think honestly, at the root of that is probably testosterone. That's yeah. controversial too, but I, I, mean, I hey, think it's men in particular. Let's fire it up, Wayne. Let's yeah, fire it let's, up. Let's talk about the uh, the castration conversation. I know that you did not follow through. <laughs> yeah, there was a you time did in my not life. Through on your, your I, well. I, I actually investigated castrating myself when I started because I read this book by uh, an evolutionary biologist named Richard Rangham. Amazing guy, really smart dude who's researched primates. He wrote this book called Demonic Males about 
how, so for example, most people don't know this. Did you know orangutans, one of, basically, I think it's like 50% of all pregnancy is due to rape. You know, and there's basically two evolutionary models for orangutans. There's the big, strong orangutan that dominates the territory and has like a harem, a bunch of female orangutans that he controls. And then there are these like smaller, more agile orangutans. And they're, what they've been selected to do is their, their genes for thousands of years have been developed to the point that they're, they're basically quick rapists. They like barge into the territory, attack. And it's, it's like, and orangutans are otherwise very peaceful animals. Mm. I, I mean, they're not known as extremely aggressive animals. Like chimps are pretty dangerous. But orangutans, you see an orangutan, probably not going to kill you. A chimp? There's like a reasonable chimp that, there's a reasonable chance that chimp will fuck you up, you know? Mm. And they're really strong. But orangutans don't like that, except when it comes to these agile orangutans that go and rape them. And Richard Rangan writes about this. And he also writes about how all these other, like chimps, for example, like male violence is just part of their culture. And they're our closest evolutionary ancestor. You know, we diverged from chimps about 2.5 million years ago. And they are brutal. They're brutal. Mm-hmm. Like the men tear each other to pieces. They tear the woman to pieces if they're not happy with them. They kill each other's children. It's like a war of all against all. And I read this book. And I was super depressed. I mean, I read this book probably in my early 20s, something like that. And I actually seriously investigated castrating myself because I was so depressed about being a man. But I didn't do it. Maybe what? I should have. Is it a rationalization or is it a justification that it kind of <laughs> ends, ends versus means here? I'm feeling motivated as heck to fight for animal rights. And it just so happens to be like the thing that people admire about me. I, that's a thousand percent coincidence. I assure you it has no effect upon me. Wait, I'm not sure. I'm, not I'm, I'm, talk, I, I, uh, I'm just talking about like uh, doing things that are not just animal rights. I should say like high profile, oh, high I status see. things. Yeah, like that. Men know? like to puff their chest out. And, yeah. yeah. No, there's there's a but there's also a difference between the behaviors that our genes have trained into us and that just have evolved from thousands of years of evolution, including cruelty. In my view, mm-hmm. I don't know if you all agree with this, but and also just what we're actually conscious of. You know, so you you might. You might have a behavior that seeks social status just because, you know, you've been trained by your genes have been trained to do this as a male. Like you got to puff your chest out, just kind of a peacock's got to have their feathers. And you might not actually even consciously know that what you're doing is for status. And there's actually another interesting example. I don't know if this is Richard Rangham's work, but somebody's work about music. So do you know the evolution origin of music? I feel like I've had this conversation with you. I don't don't know. So music, what, what evolutionary biologists think music is, I mean, we know songbirds. You know, all songbirds are basically males. It's the boys that sing. And it's entirely about attracting a mate. And the reason these songs are really effective at attracting a mate is because they show your evolutionary fitness and particularly your intellectual acumen. It's like bragging about how smart you are because it turns out if your brain is not functioning well, it's really hard to carry a tune. It's very hard to come up with new tunes. Mm-hmm. So, and this is the nature. And, and so when I read this, it was, was kind of like my desire to castrate myself when I was in my early 20s. I actually, I, I first read about the evolution of words as a music. I, it wasn't Richard Rennahan because I gave up on music when I was 16 years old. But it was, it was because I read about this and I thought, wow, we're just posturing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think we'll, we'll maybe be on that topic, which I think is an interesting one to to get into because, uh, yeah, it's 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 been my experience. I, I talked about this how this was something that inspired me early on, is uh, the, the you know not just like unfair attacks against you coming from all angles, 
Um, but the way that you respond to those and it's, you know, like I'll be, I was living actually the house I'm about to move out of that I've been at for four plus years or whatever. Now Dingo Den, uh, oh, Wayne Dingo would live Den. there and I, I'd be, you know, upstairs in, in my closet, 15 feet away from the closet Wayne's living in. <laughs> Uh, and I'd pull up my phone and like, let's see what the explosion of the. For the record, is. we don't all live in closets. That's not just a weird <laughs> DXE closet thing. It's just Matt and I are trying to get lower rent, so we, we have a, a culture. Of we sacrifice. lived in a closet, and other people lived in bedrooms. There were people yeah. actually lived in real bedrooms. I've upgraded ahead. to a real bedroom since. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you know, so, so many mornings you would just. You know, what's what's the crisis of the moment? What are people fighting about at the moment? What are people like coming after you or coming after DXC on at the moment? Um, you know, whether, it, you know, it's, it's industry or animal rights activists or like whatever, um, you know, but then I walk downstairs and there's there's Wayne sitting on his laptop at 7 a.m. like with a smile or, you know, you know, just emanating like energy, like, Oh, this is, this is interesting. Like I have a new puzzle <laughs> to solve today. Like a thousand more people like hate my guts or yeah. something, you know? Um, and it was, yeah, I mean, a combination of it being so undeserved, uh, for, for somebody who's giving so much time, so much literal money. That was a fun one. Those are fun ones. When people, you know, suggest that oh, well, Wayne is, um, you know, fleecing the animal rights movement or fleecing DXE for money, and it's like, okay, <laughs> the guy who walked away from you know, however many six figures, high six figures, pay for as a lawyer is now, you know, donating six figures, and somehow I'm like the meme lady who's like looking at the math equations equals Wayne fleecing DXE for millions. Yeah, that was a thing. Got there it. are a lot of people. I mean, I think that the entire cult. I mean. The culture of DXC is one where people are willing to sacrifice, and I'm not sure that's all good. You know, I mean, I've been probably the biggest advocate of making sure people are supported and cared for. And when we raise, so there's this program that a nonprofit we work with grants fellowships to activists of originally thirty thousand dollars, and I was the biggest advocate. I think I mean most people would probably say of increasing this to thirty-five thousand. And and the reason for that is, I think there's something to be said about trying to prove to folks that you're willing to sacrifice, trying to be frugal and use your money in a way that you get the best bang for the buck, and especially as grassroots activists. I mean, we've raised like a pretty astonishing amount of money from my perspective, even as someone who made six figures. I'm just blown away that we have millions of dollars now in supporters, and it really is I feel like pretty we, incredible that so many people have stepped more. up. <laughs> but, but compared to, for example, the Humane Society, which I think has $250 million in assets, and yeah. you know, I don't remember, I think it's like, $60 million in revenue, it's still chump change. But nonetheless, for us, it's a huge amount of money. And, and for any reasonable human being, anything beyond six, I mean, even six figures is an unreasonable amount of money, really. Mm -hmm. So seven figures, it's like ridiculous. It feels incredibly weighty and it feels, honestly, I feel guilty about it. And I think a lot of people do. And, and But at the same time, you got to weigh that against the fact that we got to have activists who are going to stick around yeah. longer than one, two, three years. And yeah. And we've, we've actually had a lot of debates, and I've had debates with the current leadership team about fellowships and compensation, because I think that, you know, if you're going to keep an activist, like, I want, Lewis, I want you to be an animal rights activist in the next 30 years of your life. You know, I don't think you want to have any more kids. Mm -hmm. I think Lewis might, no, might want to have kids. Yeah, Lewis is not going to have a child in a reasonable situation on 35000 I'm just sorry. Yeah. Nobody. They won't. They yeah. probably won't even allow you. Yeah, they're just going to say you don't financially qualify. Adopt a raccoon off the street. So if Lewis and I'm, I don't think people should give up all their life visions beyond animal rights just to be an activist, or frankly, in any movement. And just as importantly, 
and this is something I've learned the hard way because I was not very relatable for the last 10 years of my life. And I think this is something going to give you some tough love. You need to work on too. (laughs) You're not very relatable either. But if we are actually going to have experiences that other human beings have and not be seen as like a weird cult of people who are willing to sacrifice their freedom and maybe their lives for the animals, you've got to have some shared experiences with ordinary people. And we've got to have diversity within our community. You know, we talk such a good game about racial diversity, about gender diversity, about diversity and orientation. We don't actually talk too much about lifestyle and life background diversity, you know, and we, we've talked a little bit about ageism, but even having more mothers and fathers mm-hmm. in our community, mm-hmm. you know, so I think we've got to think about that. So anyways, I, I don't, I don't think we should go too far in that direction. I thank you for applauding my willingness to sacrifice, but I think it's done some negative things to the movement too. Yeah. Well, I think, I think we, we should, uh, you know, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, I think, uh, you know, the thing to do is, is the utilitarian lens. And so it's, uh, you know, like, like where are people at and where are people's values at and so on, it, it, you know, in a very hypothetical situation, you know, who knows, like if, if there was a bunch of people who, you know, if the resource distribution was separate and people were extremely willing to d- dedicate their time and their energy and people were not willing to dedicate their money, you know, th- things could be different. So it's t- kind of talking about like where people are at. And, you know, I think it, it just bears repeating somewhat ad nauseum of the the enormity of animal suffering dot 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 footnote asterisk <laughs> relative to human suffering and there's lots and lots of including your suffering, suffering. Uh, yeah Especially which your suffering. yeah my my i one time i like i have to pee a little bit right now and it's just really unjust <laughs> um you know so you know yeah to, to the oppression Olympics, like Matt's been drinking like, a lot whatever. of beer for the record, everybody. Wayne's it got me, uh, you know, under his thumb right now. He just keeps <laughs> sliding him over. Uh, but, 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 yeah. So, it's, I mean, you know, and that's <laughs> so rub people the wrong way sometimes. And I think, you know, if, if my calculation is wrong, then we bring that up. But if my calculation is not wrong, then I think that it's it is what it is. That you know, the the, the number of animals that are being subjected to what they're subjected to uh, is just unfathomably huge and racism is totally legit and evil or you know it's totally real and and evil and sexism is totally real and evil but um you talk about you know something like a species equality act if we had a constitutional amendment that said under the law that all that that sentience equals personhood you're gonna have a gajillion arguments about how exactly to interpret that and what that means and how you build a house that might be on the whatever, you know, the might there, you know, there's going to be animals that live there. How you navigate that is a bureaucratic mess and, and just a mess on so many levels and endless arguments. But the outcome of that is just, I, there's just no version of reality. That's just not enormously better. And that's why I don't spend, you know, a lot of my time and energy explicitly on, you know, like, okay, ending capitalism. Yeah. Probably. I think that that is a thing that makes sense for us to do at some point we can sort of like hack our minds and have people's you know not be so ego driven and materialistic and money driven and we can hack people's like sense of things and it's like how much good you do in the world is what people strive for we can get over that or like racism you know we have a country where the vat 95 98 99 percent of people will say they're against racism so it's like complicated you know somewhat of like how we solve that problem but the problem of speciesism the steps are quite clear. 
what we, we know that there are extremely positive steps. Getting rid of factory farming, getting rid of the fur industry, getting rid of animal agriculture, and even beyond that, proactively helping animals. Like Those are all rock-solid arguments to massively benefit the sort of meta-level net sum of well-being on this planet. And so many of these other issues are areas where people actually like agree in principle of course, not saying that people don't have a bajillion blind spots. People who voted for Trump and you know yeah. oppose Black Lives Matter and so on have a bajillion blind spots. But they fundamentally, they're not going to say, "Hey, yeah, yeah I'm I mean, better than a black person." I think your your argument may be an argument for prioritization for some folks, especially if you genuinely feel passionate about animal rights. I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to have to be an effective activist for anything unless you really believe in it and you yeah, know, you have that purpose behind it. Where you and I almost certainly disagree, and I think we can have like reasonable conversations about this, and this is one of the reasons I started the podcast. We can have reasonable conversations about this. Both of us are progressives, you know. Both of us care about racial justice. We care about gender equity and all these things. But I think there's disagreement even within DXC about how much solidarity is important. You know, so, like yeah, in, 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 in solidarity, question. meaning not just saying, yes, I agree with anti-racism, but how much we should be directly involved in, for example, fighting for racial justice. And even, you know, like I've told you that I'd like to do more racial justice work and, you know, you've tried to argue me out of oh, it well, and say... and tactically. But, but, but tactically, but, but I... But, and, and, I and, and I understand your perspective on this is, is, is not just about animals or about human beings. It's just about what's best for either of them. I mean, it's, you're not going to be able to do a good job on racial justice, for example, if you don't know anything about it. You're coming in there as an amateur... And, and it is true that the last 20 years of my life, I've developed expertise as an animal rights activist, and I don't know as much about racial justice, although I have done stuff. stuff. And the yeah. first movements I was a part of, the first campaigns I was a part of, were movements against racial injustice, capital punishment in Illinois. You know, we succeeded that campaign. I mean, I had an infinitesimally small role in that in Illinois. I mean, I was like a very green activist in the late 1990s, but I was part of it. But I think it's hard to have those conversations right now because yeah. – even some of the things you're saying a little bit tipsy, like I'm thinking to myself, honestly, I'm just thinking to myself, oh, I'm cringing a little bit and saying, if someone takes us the wrong way, interprets yeah. us the wrong way, they're going to say, Matt's racist. I'm cringing and, as well. And, and look, <laughs> the reality myself. is, the reality is, you know, and again, Matt and I may disagree about this. I think everybody's racist to some degree. You know, it's yeah. just about like, it's about how much we acknowledge mm -hmm. it. And I, I don't, I want to get too much into critical theory and all the debates about that, but that's, yeah. this oh, is, this is one of the, this is one of the hypotheses of critical theory that because like systems are racist and structures are racist, if we're part of the system, all of us are racist and yeah. it's important for us to acknowledge it. And I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic to that. Oh, I'm, I'm yeah. And we're species. Yeah. We're all, you know, yeah, we are. We are. We thinking about the, the animals that were, you know, lived, used to live on the ground. We're standing on right now. You know, sure. But th then the question is how do we effectively overcome Tactically, that? Yeah. Strategically. And, and right now I think we're living in a place where it's hard to even have that strategic conversation. Yeah. Because if you say, you know, I actually would really love for us to be able to fight racism, sexism, you know, homophobia and speciesism. And I think the most effective way for that is just comparative expertise, you know, which I think is your view. It, well. It's going to be interpreted a certain way. And, and and to the extent even to the extent you have some sort of genuine racial prejudice, which, again, I think all Every, of us do. Yeah. It's going to be hard for you to actually process that. Right. In an environment where the moment you express it or even a hint of it. You're going to be punished. Yeah, and I mean, oh no, and it, it, totally. I mean, tactically, it's it's an open conversation and a vibrant one right now within DXE. That it, it, you know, I don't know really tactically. Um, so, 
you know, I don't know. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll see if this makes the cut uh, on, on the air here, but, uh, Oh, we're just making the put, put, yeah, man, put it out the there, like, you know, as you know, this is like authentic to a match, and you know, I don't know, it's maybe disrupting something and maybe gonna get backlash, but hopefully, gonna be like productive. And I think, you know, obviously, there are a ton of very uh, in, intelligent and passionate and competent people in like all these different movements, and I think that we have to be open and assume good faith and 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 hear each other out and and, and all that stuff and there will be the uh, uh you know the opportunists and the mainstream media and so on that are going to jump on it but i yeah it's, at some point we kind of have to you know get a little bit beyond you know find some way to get out of like the confines of you know this you can't bring up certain things you can't you know you can't just be honest because that's you know, that's, that's patronizing too. Like that's, I feel like that's like the slow burn. That's not like the immediate, like, Oh my God, you're racist for saying X, Y, Z thing. That's actually true. It's more like you pay a slow, subtle price by, you know, to the extent that you're not being authentic and, and there, there's, there's trade-offs. I don't know exactly where that all lies, but uh, it's, it's an open conversation. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you build trust by being honest and direct with each other even in disagreements and whatever your views are on some strategic kind of problem the movement may be facing. So for example, the extent to which intersectionality should be a big part of the movement. If we're not creating a space where people can be open and honest, mm -hmm. nothing's gonna be come out from that that's good. Nothing's gonna come out from that that's good. So, you know, we've gotta find a ways to have these conversations and Yeah. But it's hard. Well, it's it hard because you know, you get why people are are afraid. I mean, there's like this fear that right now that anyone who's not with us is against us. Yeah. And if they're not with us hundred percent, they're going to attack us. And then it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. because when you start believing that of the people around you and, and you were talking about all these crises I faced and the happy face I had in the mornings. I mean, honestly, the last year has probably been the hardest for me in that regard. And it's one of the reasons why I had to step back That's because I don't know if you'd have still been LO if that would have, you know, if you'd have been lead organizer DXC, would you still, because maybe there's uh, like a correlate, I don't know. Yeah, there is something to be said about when you're thrust in a position of responsibility, you just kind of take it. Honestly, I think yeah. you and especially Almira, oh, I think this experience has definitely happened. I, where I didn't, I was nervous. You develop. Well. When you step back as, as a lead yeah. organizer, I was quite nervous, but totally. The point you're no, Tanner's, halfway through Tanner's making been is amazing. exactly. Yeah. Almira Tanner is the lead organizer of Direct yeah. Action Network. She was elected by our chapter membership after I stepped down. And she's handled herself with just such compassion, empathy, expertise, yeah. adeptness, and, and really difficult disputes. And, yeah. and a lot of people are mad at her, and she's kind of experiencing what I experience now, and she's handling herself yeah. well. And maybe I'd handle myself just as well if I were leader. But honestly, I look at it now, I'm thinking, I'm glad I'm not in that position. Oh, and frankly, yeah, you're in that position, fun, too, because yeah. Matt's one of the five elected core organizers in, in DXC. This is frankly, the only animal rights group, actually the only really social movement organization I know of that, that has a, an elected leadership structure. Sounds like a cult to me. <laughs> yeah. But um, when you're thrust in that position, I think it almost forces you to toughen up a little bit and realize it's now my responsibility to hear these complaints and, yeah. and deal with these conflicts. But oh, I, it's the number one reason people burn out. I have the sure. same the same energy like that I that, that inspired me about you like getting your unfair attacks and like so on. Like now it's like the same thing. It, it's it, it actually is like kind of irrational, but it's like this like loyalty thing. Like you, you know X Y Z. You know 
we value our activists, like whatever. But some people will just flood Almira with messages and like demand her response right now. And it was just like, come on, what the hell? Like, do you know? Like, she's got shit to do. Like, argue with me, argue with anybody that's not Almira about this right now. Like, yeah. please. But I mean, you know, I, I want to push back on that. And and I think Almira has this view too. And I, I certainly had this when I was lead organizer. That's kind of the job. When you, that's why you're extent. the lead organizer because people trust you to handle those concerns and complaints. And you know, do we need to develop more capacity within movements to resolve conflicts independently of leadership? Absolutely. Yeah. But one of the fundamental rules, I mean, so I, I don't know if this is true or not. I don't even remember where I read it, but there's an apocryphal story or possibly apocryphal story about Martin Luther King Jr. where we remember him for giving these rousing speeches and organizing these people across bridges and boycotting buses in Montgomery and all these things. And, and I, I think this is true. And I think it, I've heard this from many other social movement leaders that he said he spent about 80% of his time on infighting mm -hmm. and about 20% on actual direct action and, yeah. and changing the powerful institutions. Cause to get to the point where you're able to have the power that you can take down these massive systems that, you know, in, in the case of speciesism, again, I think it's probably tens, hundreds of thousands of years you got to get people working together. And you mm -hmm. do that by showing you're able to negotiate these very difficult situations. And so it's a skill set a movement's got to develop. And I told Almir, and we actually have a training about this, that where we, we basically say one of the points of the training and leadership training is you're a babysitter and be proud of that. You yeah. know, and, and it makes sense to me because when you think about babysitters, I mean, we laugh about it, but like babies are the most treasured members of families, mm -hmm. right? We love them immensely. I mean, I have two nieces. When they're babies, we protect them. We thought, like, you and would not trust your baby. don't talk logic for shit. <laughs> don't talk logic. But you don't just trust anybody with your baby, right? Your, your baby mm -hmm. is given to someone, like, who's a family member, who you know is going to care for them well. And so being a babysitter is actually a high-trust position. You give it to someone you really believe in their intentions and their character. You don't just give it to a stranger. You don't even really give it to a family member who's a little bit off, you know? Like, you give it to someone you really trust. And similarly... When you're a leader in a movement or a leader in any organization, own the fact that you're babysitter and understand that is an honorable position yeah. and understand that when someone comes to you with a complaint or concern, that is that is because they trust you. Right, right. And so you should honor that, you know, and say, thank you for sharing this with me. Yeah. And I'm going to do my best to try and work this out. You can't solve every problem, but you can try you and you can honor the position. Something. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I think people should feel free to bring concerns up. And I think our leadership team should honor the fact that people trust you enough that they want to bring mm -hmm, these things up. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it's hard. Yeah, I I, I'm not going to lie and say that it's not one of the reasons I step back. And 100% is one of the reasons I step back. Cause mm -hmm. just it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> I've I, yeah. Yeah. seen it plenty, basically firsthand, yeah, how that, how that uh, comes through. Yeah, and it's, I think the biggest difference between people's perception of what it's like to be an activist, especially an activist leader, and what it is actually like to be an activist or an activist leader is this, mm -hmm. that you see the public facing work. You think our fight is primarily with animal agriculture, with powerful government figures, Chris Christie, mm -hmm. you know, CEO Smithfield, um, prosecutors that are coming after us. Yeah. But honestly, our biggest struggle is with our internal within. demons. Exactly. Yeah, it's exactly. the demons within that yeah. are the most deadly. Yeah. So we, we talked quite a bit about, you know, how you get involved and we talked about kind of the your evolution into becoming an animal rights activist and some of your initial experiences as a DX, DXE activist. But what you're doing now is very different than what you did <laughs> when you first started as a DXE activist. In many ways, 
you're facing even bigger challenges because the challenge now for you as kind of the press coordinator for DXC is not just getting media attention, but shaping it. Right. And so, I mean, I would say, I don't know if you think this is the case. I would say your biggest success is, you know, this incredible investigation of ventilation shutdown that we referenced previously. I mean, would you agree with that? That's your oh, single biggest. Yeah, I, I, think I think it's so. hard to argue with that. Yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, it, it got national media attention. Everybody in the animal rights movement was talking about it. And it really leapt on an issue that was just a really important conversation across the nation about how fragile our food system is. And a lot of the conversation in the media outside of animal rights was just about, oh, my God, can you believe that it'd be that easy for our entire meat system to shut down? And, and how horrible. Like, it's basically like death yeah. for all of us if, <laughs> if such a thing were to happen. I mean, unfathomable. Yeah, you yeah know? all the people who are just – I remember I went to Costco <laughs> – Around the time when the pandemic hit and, you know, all the meat section is just all gone and they usually had, you know, you can buy one of them. So there's this rationing process. I remember seeing people just like staring at the meat counter just yes. like, and they look this like ghosts. The they look like, and I'm like, dude, I'm so sorry. If you just like Beyond Burgers, there's plenty of them on the other side of the store. Yeah. But people were so upset. And what you all did was you interjected a different aspect of that conversation that was really important. And for people to understand because the crisis in the context of the shutdown of the slaughterhouses was, you know, frankly, first and foremost, not what was happening to human beings because we all survived. If you had to eat some beans or eat a plant burger instead of a meat burger, no human being is going to be adversely affected. Frankly, they might have benefited from it. They got a little healthier. But what was happening to the animals was terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, so it- tell me, tell me more about how this all unfolded. Like, Tell us about how you got interested in ventilation shutdown and frankly, you know, how you thought about getting involved in media work and shaping the conversation around this the way you did. Well, yeah. So, so I, I'd be, or have been the press coordinator for DXC for over three years. So that, that predates, um, you know, all this by, by a good bit. And uh, in addition to kind of the formal press role of sending out press releases and talking to journalists and all that sort of thing, um, as as is the case often in DXC because people are very passionate and are you know it's it's certainly not this climate where you're just laser focused on sort of the motions going through the motions of your job but you are very much concerned about the organization as a whole and the movement as a whole which is just across DXC's culture and is a wonderful thing um so basically uh pandemic happening and uh the press uh is (laughs) even less interested in animal rights issues than usual because there's a global pandemic happening. And uh, so I ended up kind of doing some other stuff. And actually, I'll just back up slightly before the pandemic was really a, a huge thing in the United States. Uh, in January of 2020 was when uh, DXC released this investigation that I led of the uh, quote-unquote pork farm uh, found uh, owned by Iowa State Senator Ken Rosenboom, who is this very loud and proud uh, advocate of these ag-ag laws that Iowa has now uh, now passed a total of four of, one of which I'm being currently charged under. Um, so the senator, who's basically the face of, of animal agriculture and, and these ag-ag laws that are, uh, frankly, unconstitutional and have been ruled as such in, in many states uh, that... Including in Iowa. Inclu- including in the Iowa. The law that Ken then, Rosenboom passed yeah. was struck down a couple years ago. Yeah, and then I will pass a slightly a different one. version, yeah. just it's just like immediately and yeah. and long, you know, they're all. Well, you actually went into his tied farm. it. Uh, yeah, so I went yeah. into his farm and 
And these ag gag laws prohibit photography and videography inside of agricultural facilities. And so we um, kind of did, did the opposite of what uh, you know, a lot of activists do and uh, the opposite of what the intended effect of these uh, laws are, which is intimidation. And we went, not only did we go in and expose animal agriculture facilities and we did we document inside of these facilities, we went right to the heart of it to the state senator behind it um, and, and exposed what was happening in there. And <laughs> I mean, on one hand, probably an above average uh, pig farm. And it's on, not saying much, which yeah. is not saying much. Yeah. And, and, and when I say above average pig farm, uh, in terms of animal welfare, we're talking animals with their insides hanging out, um, anal and vaginal prolapses, uh, that are just left untreated dead animals laying around. Um, explain what an anal or vaginal prolapse is for, for oh, cause I think yeah. people should know. And this is very common. I've seen many of them too. Yes. I've seen many, many other contexts too. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, Basically, your insides are coming out of your body, yeah. um, and that's, that's caused by poor conditions and, and, and diarrhea, and I don't even remember what, what all the circumstances are, but it's a really filthy, crowded, disgusting environment where all sorts of d- diseases can breed, in, including uh, being ideal breeding grounds for future pandemics, which didn't seem like such a relevant thing at the time of this investigation. You know, it seemed plenty relevant in general, but uh, you know, before COVID really hit. Um, so we exposed that farm and then, and that was, uh, January of 2020 when that investigation came out, got a lot of good media attention. It was, it was a pretty successful release all in all. And then, you know, a few months later we get this email from, uh, this whistleblower. We can now publicly name, uh, Lucas Walker, amazing guy as, as you'll hear, I guess, with the story, um, who was a truck driver for Iowa select farms, which is Iowa's largest pork producer and somewhere between the fourth and eighth largest, uh, pork producer in the country. And, uh, he originally contacted us, had nothing to do with ventilation shutdown. It was the day-to-day routine abuse of animals. And he says, if you think that the overcrowding you saw at Senator Rosenboom's facility was bad, what's happening every single day at Iowa select farms and on a much more massive scale is, is far worse. So that's where that conversation started. So it wasn't. And this email even, just came out of the blue, right? There yeah. Was, oh, just, I, I don't even remember the exact context. Well, but. I, yeah, well, he contacted me. He was like, hey, I can get you the trucking records and the shipment records and whatever. And then I call you up and you're like, okay, sounds like a set, you know, <laughs> sounds right. like I a computer hacking setup here. Yeah. Because he's like, you know, uh, so yeah, we proceeded said, with caution. Do you, do you have a Nigerian prince who's going to help you get it wealthy yeah. too? Because I mean, <laughs> it did sound like one of those scams on the internet when you first reached right. out to me. I don't know if I and ever get, saw the initial communications, though, to be honest. I'm not sure. But anyways, go but ahead. We, continue we, your we story. proceeded cautiously, and one so did he. Actually, he he was using a fake name, which is, yeah, pretty understandable from his perspective. Not you know not exactly knowing what to expect with us, and just a cold reach out. Yeah. Um, and anyway, it contacted us, and interestingly, as we would later find out, at the same time that this one Iowa Select Farms truck driver is contacting us and saying, "Oh my God, you need to see this. Something needs to be done about how horrible these pigs are being." packed into these trucks and into these sheds. So his concern was just the confinement. How many of the animals were in a small amount of space? That, that was the, the, the main thing. I mean, he's okay. talked about rampant disease and, and, and mistreatment, but the crowding was the thing that he contrasted with what yeah. made headlines at this one, you know, small farm, uh, Senator yeah. Rosenboom. Um, but at the same time he was doing that, ISF as a company, well, we, we weren't able to look at outside all their farms, but we randomly happened to pop into a facility where, which resulted in my felony charge and my ag gag charge in that facility. At the same time, Iowa select farms is feeling the very opposite of Lucas Walker who wants to tell us all about things. And they put up this flyer 
in one facility that we know of, likely many, many, many more, uh, but one that we know of, they put up this flyer, which has my photo of it, of me removing, this was at a, a prior dairy uh, investigation in California, rescuing this calf who was really sick, so I got my arms wrapped around this calf, carrying this calf. Wait, 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 wait. back this up. So wh why were you in this Iowa Select farm in the first place? This is just like a random other farm you decide to investigate? Yeah. So you're investigating the senator's farm, and there's, for the record, again, Iowa's like the largest, I think it is Pig the farming. pork. Yeah. Pig farming state in the By nation. Far. So there's tons of them. So you investigate Senator Rosen Boom, Boom, yep, yep. farm, and then you just randomly walk into an Iowa Select farm too, just because yeah. you're checking it out. Oh, seeing yeah. what it's like. Yeah, I know it was it was it was it was different than I'm getting a little ahead of myself okay. here. Yeah, but uh and then you the, see the your flyer, face on a bulletin board. Yeah, so so the, there's this flyer, I'll just say, yeah, and it, it said it in, in, in Spanish uh, because of you know the, the folks that uh, end up having to work these jobs because they don't have a lot of choices in our society. Whole other conversation. Uh, but anyway, in, in Spanish, what it said was, um, activist, if you see him, call the manager. If he walks in, we're yeah. fucked. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, very How did you, how did you respond when you saw it? You were the I, one who actually found this, Yeah, right? well, I didn't, we didn't know what it said, you know, and we're oh. like hustling. Uh, so this but you, is, saw, you must have recognized your face. Well, no? Certainly, yes. Oh, no, that was an, actually this. You must have been like, actually, what the hell? Was, this yeah, is weird. We're just like <laughs> taking pictures and, you know, we were trying to get a lot done right then. But yeah, it was very much like I need to, you know, send this to my Spanish speaking friends and figure out what, 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 what it's because it's, yeah. it's interesting. It's certainly interesting. Yeah. But, it, but so, so that all came about. Um, so, but this is all before Lucas even reached out to you. You saw that image. No, no, no. That, that was, that oh, was daring. after. Yeah. I so it was, this is after so Lucas. I was just contrasting the way that this one individual human who's not tied to the company yeah. and is just acting authentically is horrified by what ISF is doing. Meanwhile, ISF as an institution yeah, is putting out the opposite by, message. Yeah, basically saying we're fucked if this guy yeah. gets the video cameras in here. So one, the worker is basically trying to say, Hey, there's bad things happen. I want people to hear about this. Even if I'm not the one who wants to come out and say it, because I mean, again, yeah. all the shit you went through as a vegetarian. And I, I mean, he's actually a worker for the industry. Yeah. Imagine that what you experienced times 10. Mm hmm. That's so this life. is what the workers thinking and probably what other workers think. And, and actually we verified this. Now there were higher level executives who actually wanted this to come out while the company itself as an, as an institution had a policy of doing everything it could to stop anything from getting out. Right. Yeah. Including putting your face on every bulletin board. Yeah. And say, if you see this guy report him immediately. Cause yeah. he's the one who exposed the Senator. Yeah. And it's, it, yeah, it's, it's just uh, so incredible that it, it causes who, who so saw, much can, can you tell me how, how did you discover this image by the way of your own face? Was it just you there or were there? No, there were, uh, there were other, others. If you can't uh, name them, you probably, can't name them. Yeah, probably. Okay, yeah, I should, but, but, uh, but who yeah, actually I mean, found it? Was it you? It was, it was not myself. It was a video. Somebody like, Matt, come here, come here, come here, come here. You know, and it was, you know, <laughs> so it was a camera person. So, um, yeah, well, there were like three people. Three so yeah, it was, uh, yeah, a lot oh. going on. We were yeah, kind of checking, checking things Damn. out. Okay. Um, so uh, anyway, we're kind of jumping around here a little bit, but uh, so, so Lucas Walker reaches out to us, says there's this horrible overcrowding that's happening. And we're like, okay, that's interesting. Had a few conversations kind of like, you know, both of us kind of feeling each other out. Can we trust each other? You know, yeah. do we got enough, you know, and we do have, you know, it seems like we have enough common ground here that we can kind of work on something and, you know, create some positive awareness, positive change here. Then COVID hits, the slaughterhouse shutdowns hit and there, you know, these, you know, what the industry would see is a backlog of supply and these pigs that they want to kill and profit off of and so on. Uh, they're not able to send them through in their normal process. And 
So this creates. And this uh, is because workers are getting sick yeah, at the yeah. slaughterhouses, and I think, I believe the figure is something like twelve percent. I I could be wrong about this. Of slaughterhouse workers? No, twelve percent of all COVID infections in the United States. Oh. Back in July, I think the number there about six to seven percent. of all COVID infections in the United States. Oh yeah, can be traced well, back to slaughterhouse. And if you look at like for the record, the states, person you're hearing in the background is a veterinarian. So yeah. Very credible professional giving us some oh, good information. Yeah, yeah, and it was on the news. Like, I mean, it was on the news. It's a huge percentage. In, in like April, like, May, yeah, all the like slaughterhouses in, are getting shut down. Yeah, yeah, and um, so so they're they're yeah they have this you know what they just see from a business perspective is a supply chain issue and they can't send the pigs through and um, you know bottom line the, the the way the system is that uh, you're either gonna basically follow the path of most profit, the path of least resistance money-wise, or you're kind of going to not be in business. So in this case, the path because yeah, they can't just keep feeding animals that they're not going to slaughter. Yeah, or it's even if they're going to kill them, even if they're going to kill them, you know, some ways are more expensive than others. And yeah. so, you know, absent some very vigilant, watchful eyes, and this is a very powerful industry that doesn't have many watchful eyes over it, you know, it's all going to just kind of lowest common denominator, cheapest, quickest, most, you know, cost-efficient way animal well-being is has a value of zero dollars in this system and so yeah where that all leads to is is this uh practice called ventilation shutdown uh which is uh pretty orwellian doublespeak nazi stuff for uh loading thousands of pigs inside of a, an industrial shed sealing off the doors sealing off the windows making these places airtight as you can pumping in heat pumping in steam and as horrible as that sounds, I assure you that it, the reality is is far worse. Um, you know, we're talking, you know, well into well over two hours of. I mean, it just you know the the closest equivalent of what it sounds like is if a bomb goes off, you know, in, in like Times Square. Like, what does that sound like right after the bomb goes off? Um, basically, that times hours. Yeah. Um, and you know, I was just listening to physiologists on podcasts talk about how suffocation is probably the worst way to die. And I think the addendum he should have added to that is suffocation caused by heat stroke. That's very slow, you know, because it's not suffocation that happens over the span of five minutes or 10 minutes. It's slow, burning, hot suffocation of breathing in, you mm -hmm. know, burning hot steam over the course of hours. And, you know, if you haven't, I almost hate to tell people to go listen to it because mm -hmm. the video footage, honestly, is, is not that bad because it's just steam. steam you building. see all these steam. It's the audio that's disturbing of just yeah. animals crying on agony for hours. And, and just no, no non-psychopathic person can listen to that and say, I don't feel something about this. And you know, I just, it, you have to. Yeah. And it, I just have like a, a weird thought like this. If anybody's ever read the book or watched the movie Matilda, where there's like this little girl and there's this horrible the Trunchbull, Marissa's Trunchbull, or whatever it was, it was this like horrible. Um, Trunchbull? Uh, that was the teacher's name, or she was like the principal, or there was some other word for it. And anyways, she was just like horribly abusive to the kids, and then uh. you, they, the kids would go home and tell their parents, and nobody, the parents well, would never believe them, them because yeah. it can't really be that bad. bad yeah. Same sort of thing, yeah. you know? And uh, I mean, yeah, every, but without exception, I mean, jaws drop when I tell people about this. Yeah. Um, and, and, and yet, you know, not only did it happen, uh, there was no charges that were filed against the company. And then yeah. there were very severe charges that are, you know, yeah, now put, yeah. put against folks like us. Um, and so can I ask you a question? I mean, what, what did you know about ventilation shutdown before Lucas? Did Lucas, was Lucas I, the one who shared with 
I th- with no, us this was happening? I, I think was, we already knew about this. Yeah, and we're, yeah, it was on our radar. I had just become aware of it okay. with COVID. They're saying this, this kind of seemed like it might have to be, you know, have to be, quote unquote, yeah. a thing for chickens and maybe also pigs. And so I, you know, asked Lucas, like, is, is this happening? Um, and then, yeah, I mean, at one point it was like, yeah, they're kind of talking like they're going to do this. And then it's like, oh, they're doing this tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. And then that was like, get a flight, get to Iowa, um, yeah. you know, and, and go down there and, and documented it. Long process. It took us like four weeks to, to, you know, find the place where they were doing it, where you get video cameras in there that would work in the heat and the steam and so on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, over about four weeks, we captured on video and then the following uh, few weeks after that. So why does campaign, Lucas trust you at all? I mean, because yeah. he's, that's, that's a part I don't quite get. I mean, he sends you this email and he's using a pseudonym, so he doesn't completely trust you initially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're using his process. real name now because he, he was actually in an article by The Intercept where the FBI ultimately went after him. Yeah. And even though he did nothing illegal other than yeah. just share information, which there's nothing illegal. I mean, that's the first amendment, right? Mm-hmm. We can talk to each other and give information to each other and especially about wrongdoing by a company. I mean, why, yeah. why wouldn't you be able to do this? But what, what is it? I mean, tell me more about your initial conversations with him. Did you have a phone call with him? Yeah. We, we had, yeah, we, you know, plenty of phone calls and it, yeah, I think it was a lot. Like, what of was, was the like first phone call? Like? I'm just really curious. I'm, I'm trying to like, imagine hey, what this is yeah, like. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I mean, <laughs> there, we might have a video of it somewhere. I don't know. Prob- I don't know. I pro- probably not because I just thought it was very likely fake, so I wouldn't have even recorded it. Huh. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, Rick, Rick Justin was was the pseudonym. You know, so Rick Justin. Yeah. <laughs> So I talk, you know, that's a great talking pseudonym. to him, be like, oh, you know, okay, you know, that's, and for, for and the you record, call him Rick at the time. Oh, like, yeah, for like, like a like, month, hey, Rick, for like a, yeah, like a full month, and then you know, uh-huh. but and, and for the record, I've had and a lot of people in DC have had various outreach, you know, emails yeah, of, the, to of this sort. Employees, and, oh no, yeah. but people and contacting us, absolutely, that yeah. are either fake well, or time, not yeah. that useful or exaggerated, and you know, sometimes are yeah. are useful like this one. And so, you know, you always wonder if it's just someone who's disgruntled, you know, an employee who's just mad at his boss for yep. some reason. And so, yeah, yeah go ahead. And uh, so, see, so yeah, I mean, plenty of that. And it, it really is a process of basically, you know, m- making friends. And uh, I, I, f- I felt the, the boycott veganism energy. If we want to go down a whole other uh, human hole. But, uh, y- you know, just just relating to him and being so grateful to him for what he's doing and for his, his standing up for this. And Can you explain what you meant by that? What do you mean by so, the boycott veganism energy? What about? So yeah, the, the kind of so-called boycott veganism or uh, post-veganism oh, notion wow. is, uh, is to, to say that, uh, you know, our focus shouldn't be, be on, you know, an individual kind of purity test, so to speak of like, okay, there's this thing called veganism, which means like you don't, directly consume products of animal harm, you know, but, uh, you know, there's obviously all sorts of other harm. There is pesticides and exploitative labor and so on. But, you know, we've made this, you know, there's this implicit, very firm black and white distinction of, of the good people and the bad people, which just is not reflective of the harm that is caused. It's not reflective of people's hearts necessarily. It's a systemic harm. There's it's, this yeah, bigger and system so, at issue that all of us are part of in some way. Exactly. So it doesn't make sense to say to someone just because they're not vegan, they don't have something to contribute to the animal rights movement. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and Lucas is absolutely uh, a great best, example. Yeah. I mean, so he, yeah. And so, so he, so he, uh, you know, did, did, did this, uh, you know, brave act, uh, and, and got a hold of us and, and I expressed gratitude to him and it was not 
The focus of our conversation is not what can, he's can I ask when a he goes home. Did he, did he know whether you were a vegan or not? Was that like a subject of conversation initially? And was he concerned about the fact that you're part of an animal rights group? And Yeah. So at one point he did, he, he asked me, he's like, so what are you all's thoughts on like, you know, uh, off grid pig farming? Huh. And was, you know, like, uh, here, here's, here's the moment, you know, yeah. it, it didn't feel like a big moment to him, but I was like, you know, you got to like kind of say this in the right way and say it in an honest way. And, and it was like, um, you know, I was like, yeah, I mean, it's not something that I support. And I also don't support a lot of the harm that goes into the food that I actively consume. Mm -hmm. And we have a world that's, you know, that's yeah. got all sorts of uh, suffering and injustice and whatever. And we're all kind of making our way through it. And I think that what you are doing uh, in terms of blowing the whistle on this is just on a whole other level than mm -hmm. whatever conversation is happening about whatever you're eating. And so let's just focus on helping these animals. Interesting. And, and, do you yeah, think that, that totally was important resonated. to him working with us? Or do you think I it think didn't matter? So. It was just like a random question he asked you and it wasn't. Uh, I mean, it, 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 I mean, we already had like a good vibe going and that just continued that good vibe. Yeah. And I, I know, but I think that, you know, if he was talking to the 2014 version of myself, that was, you know, yeah. <laughs> protesting at family Thanksgivings. Yeah. That could have, because so much of this is, you know, I mean, we get some tips, you know, we get people that will email us and then they get bored or they don't respond yeah. or like whatever, but you know, you know, we, you know, you want these whistleblowers who are like, you know, we want everybody who's really enthusiastic about this stuff and really excited to help. And I mean, he, you know, was just so down, like, yeah, this is a dude is like deeply steeped in the system because yeah. he's literally driving the pigs to slaughter and calling us and, and texting us at yeah, the same time. And his wife works for the company and his right? wife did. Yeah. And his, and I think his surrounding family, like, Aren't a bunch of them involved in the um, industry? Or maybe I'm I know as a that. general matter, a lot of his family okay. and his friends family are. family and friends are yeah, all. Yeah. It's, it's a pig farming state, and it's he's deep in pig farming oh, yeah. country. His whole social that state. circle and his, his professional life. And yeah, I mean, it's it's a big, big thing to, to yeah. take on. Um, but yeah, so I mean, oh, yeah, over time, you know, just a lot of conversation and honest, uh, you know, just open dialogue, and, and it, uh, it built up from there. But yeah, putting Was in that time. Was there a moment where you started believing him and thinking, this guy's legit? I mean, I was, uh, well, uh, you know, as you say, better than 50%. I was thinking that right because he, he was sending so us like screenshots of like a yeah. truck driving log, well, and I didn't really I, know what I, it meant. I remember him sending being so helpful that I was skeptical. That's one of the reasons I was like, yeah, this guy's too good to be true. You know, he, I mean, because, yeah. and I still, I mean, I've never actually met Lucas. I'd love to sit down and talk to him. Actually, maybe I'll have him on the podcast someday if he's mm. willing to, because he seems like a fascinating guy. He and you both don't make any sense to me. I still don't really understand you either, Matt, mm -hmm. to be honest. Because, I, I mean, I guess they're just human beings that are different for whatever reason and just are willing to do something very different than the people around you. But, you know, I, I consider myself pretty independent-minded. I didn't become vegetarian until I met a vegetarian. Mm. <laughs> and I just didn't – It didn't. Con and, and the same thing with animal rights activism. I mean, everyone sees Wayne as, oh, my God, he's so brave. Like I was afraid to go to a protest when I started. I was an animal rights activist. It took me years to go to a protest, and it was, and I certainly didn't support direct action. And it wasn't until I met someone who actually spent time in prison, a good buddy of mine at the University of Chicago. And I, and, and frankly, the only reason I was even willing to talk to him, his name is Josh Schwartz. He spent one year in prison as an animal rights activist. The only reason I was even willing to talk to him at the time was because I didn't know he had spent a year in prison until <laughs> like two years after I got to know him. And when I heard that, I was scared to be in the same room as him. Yeah. I kid you not. Yeah. I was so scared that this criminal was in my life that I thought, and so this You're is why get I empathize. Yeah. No, I empathize with people who are afraid of this because I just yeah. remember what it was like to be, you know, a 23, 24 year old actress. And I was already like 
a pretty experienced activist. I heard about the Shaq campaign. I knew about it. Yeah. And even for me, and it wasn't like a rational response. Right. And so for me, I look at someone like Lucas or yourself who not only doesn't have a model, like I got to know Josh really well. He, he talked to him about his experience in prison. It wasn't a good experience. The record, it totally sucked. Like they didn't give him vegan food. They had to fight in court. Josh Schwartz and his folks are actually the reason vegan food is now a constitutional right. It's considered an ethical belief that you have to respect in prison, and they litigated that case. But they were, from what I understand, they were basically starving to death. It, I mean, of course. Like, there are a lot of prisoners through history who've suffered probably worse than they did, and they did eventually get their food. So I don't want to make it seem like it was worse than it was. It wasn't like, you know, I mean, Bobby Sands literally died in prison <laughs> in, in the 1980s. Um, he was an Irish activist fighting against... Again, I'm, I'm not saying I'd support everything Bobby Sands believed in because he was a, they often used violence, but it wasn't like that, but it was really bad. Yeah. But it was knowing Josh, talking to him, like he gently coaxed me into it. And then you got people like Lewis, Lucas or yourself, who as far as I can tell, I don't think Lucas had any other animal rights support, right? He didn't have anyone in his community who was vegetarian or vegan or animal rights supporter. Am I right about that? I, yeah, I, I mean, you could sort of say say his wife, because uh, it was interesting. Who works at the wife, same pig farm? She works for Iowa Select Farms. <laughs> That's like the support. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's she. It's mind blowing. She was it's like, totally uh, mind blowing. Yeah, and she, and she for, for people's information, was she works in the, you know, these uh, farrowing facilities, is what they're called, yeah. where uh, piglets are born. And what she, I mean, you know, to some, you know, rightfully felt good about was that. She is giving, you know, nursing back to health piglets who might have an injury. You know, piglets like Gilly, mm. who ended up rescuing, that would be killed. And she her job. exercises a greater level of patience and care. Yeah. And so she can, you know, yeah. So she basically yeah. causes more pigs to not be killed and that sort of thing. Well, at least temporarily. So yeah. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. Everybody's sort of like frame of reference is very different yeah. depending on their social circumstances. But yeah, that's kind of where she was coming from. And, and, um, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I I know that he he when we started talking to Glenn, like he was you know he was really inspired literally by Edward Snowden. That whole situation was inspiring to him, yeah. and so that uh, was a big boost for him when he's like, oh, we're talking to Glenn. Like that's how yeah. this is. Gonna this go is down. Glenn Greenwald, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who yeah. broke the Edward Snowden story. We mentioned him I think earlier in the podcast. But yeah, you know, this is frankly one of the biggest stories of the last fifty years, where the U.S. government was spying as, on its own citizens and. And the report you ultimately published was of Glenn Greenwald. But, I mean, before you even get to Glenn Greenwald, you have to get, you have to, get to the point where he trusts you. And I imagine you didn't share with him boycott veganism <laughs> as an article and say, don't worry, I'm not going to you know, attack yeah. you or hate you. Which is a good, I mean, but frankly, I think there's a good lesson for us all in that relationship. Because a lot of modern, especially social media discourse, is you're on the wrong side of this issue. Which, you know, honestly, he was. And um, therefore, you're my enemy. And you somehow managed to turn that into a positive relationship where you trusted each other. But my question for you is, you kind of explained to me the moment where you trusted him, which sounded like immediately. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're more trusting people, maybe than I am. Yeah. What was the moment when he trusted you? Yeah, I think... Like, when I, did he tell you his real name? Yeah, well, that was, yeah, so he... he uh, that was, like, I think right when I first landed in Iowa, huh. and it was like, we were going to hang out, and then it was, like, the a couple days later, the next after, you know, something like that when we met in person. It was so funny, you know, co you know we're in Iowa Falls, like, there's just, yeah. like, the small, you know, it's just, there's nothing going on except for pigs. Well, and especially in the middle of a pandemic, and, right? And, and in the middle of the pandemic, middle of pandemic. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, we're, you know, where are we going to meet up? And there's like no, like, no cafes open or nothing <laughs> like that. 
and and we're like we're trying to like be chill and like get, so long story short run across the street to the walmart that was one place that was open ah, bottle of bacardi rum walmart and uh, hang out at a walmart yeah that's very and, uh, iowa matt oh yeah that was is that was, offensive for me fun. to say okay i don't know i don't want to offend any <laughs> iowans or white people but anyways go ahead uh so yeah, so you literally get a Bacardi from a Walmart yeah. and hang out outside of the Walmart. And there's no, no, at, at our hotel across at the street hotel. there. I see. Uh, okay. Yeah, which 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 happened to be like 200 feet away from the ISF office. So wow. all sorts of all sorts of fun and interesting entanglements. Oh yeah, we're hanging out and um, yeah, I think it was just it was just a fun bonding experience. That's like okay, you kind of get past like all this like weirdness and like whatever's out there, and we're just human beings. And, what did uh, you talk about? We, what uh, was the first thing you said to him? Just, hey, I'm Matt well, Johnson. <laughs> well, well, it, it was. I want to take your company down. <laughs> well, we had uh, some other people there uh, that, that were on the periphery. Um, uh, Curtis was Curtis was like his best buddy for a while there. Yeah, uh, Curtis, awesome. yeah, he, was, he was out there in Iowa. Curtis is a personal guy. I can see that. Oh yeah, yeah they, Curtis they, is a good dude. It was it was some some bonding happening, um, and 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 a few other people. Um, so I feel like from that moment, like we we like felt really solid about stuff, and he was. Just did you talk about the issues, or were you just talking about you know, football and basketball and drinking rum? Uh, well, um, I mean, we talked about like the work that we're focused on. We, yeah. you know, it wasn't deep animal rights philosophy type stuff. It was like, you know, okay, like let's get this, and he's got these people who are telling him this information, and where he, you yeah. know, that's sort of you know just procedural execution of the of the mission. And then other than that, it was kind of yeah. a little bit of everything, which was about about the right mix, I think. Was he, did he seem intimidated or scared at all? I'm just trying to like imagine this initial interaction mm -hmm. between an animal rights activist who's been in the media so many times yeah. for disrupting presidential races, whose image is literally inside the pig farm <laughs> as yeah. a threat to your this company, and then the employee of that same company coming and seeing you in person for the first time. I mean, what it, he wasn't yeah he did bashful he or shy. I or, mean, I think it was concerned. Maybe a slow enough. You know, because it starts in uh, California. I'm calling him, calls, okay. and he's, yeah, we're having a short call, and then a little longer, and then and then so on. And um, what I'm I trying to get out of this is like, what lessons do you think someone else can learn from this if they're trying to build a relationship with someone who's on the other side of an issue? I mean, what do you well, think? Yeah, you can well, teach I, I mean, I, I mean, Lucas is is one prime example, but I could could give a lot of examples of how we are so much on the same team. If we could just like hear each other out. I mean, from yeah. literally like I had was on the podcast with Ben O'Brien, who's like one of the leading um, podcasts related to outdoors and hunting. You know, he's particularly this, um, the hunters collective hmm. designed Ben on Joe Rogan a bunch of times. By the end of that podcast, you, you would, you would, if you were reading the transcript, it would be very confusing. And you would assume there had to have been a typo that I'm saying what he said, where he's talking about like, well, the progressive movements throughout time have been correct when we've given rights to a certain class. So that it was just like, bro, I'll, you, you got this. I'm just gonna step away right now. Nice. Um, and, and I, cause that's, you know, when you, when you just put, put it to somebody and you're like, Hey, what if we could have a world that's feels and looks exactly the same as the world you're living right now, but all of your meats, everything you're doing is, you know, just happens to be coming from a plant right, source yeah. and it's, it's cheaper, it's healthier, it's better for the environment. We're not torturing animals. It's like, wait, what are we even arguing about right now? Yeah. It's like, we're just arguing about the entrenched notion of like the way things are. Yeah. And it's it just, uh, it's, you know, it's kind of like the great opportunity, but the great frustration at the same time, it's just like, if we could have a little more courage and a little more action behind those convictions, then we could do 
some pretty amazing things. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that, I mean, your relationship with Lucas is a powerful example of that. But I've, I've seen this so many times, too. And this is one of the reasons why I, I think we're going in the wrong direction in the progressive movement with the exclusivity and the judgmentalness. I'm not saying don't stand behind your beliefs. I mean, if there's one thing DXE stands for, it's that be proud and loud in what you believe. But we also believe in what I call the open model. Like this is one of the first blog posts I wrote and it's really ingrained in DXE's DNA. The idea behind it is you come into movement understanding that you're not right about everything. You've got a lot of things to learn and part of making a good movement is respecting diversity of opinion, including about ethical disagreements, right? And we go so far, even on our cause, even on our cause. You know, you developed a relationship with Lucas, what's his name, Walker? Walker. Who is a truck driver for a pig farm who's trucking pigs to their death. I've become friends with Rick Pittman, one of the largest chicken and turkey slaughterers in the world. You know, his picture is in every Whole Foods. Like, literally, I think his picture is in every Whole Foods when you go see Mary's Chicken. There's a picture of him and his family. And, and I believe what he's doing is committing atrocities. And I've become friends with him. And I think this is good for the animals. And our, our movements are moving in such an opposite direction. And I think that's really bad. And the, the idea behind the open model is first come into movement, understanding this is part of what makes movement strong that we have this diversity and difference of opinion, but we still need to focus on the areas of commonality, even with folks like Lucas or Rick Pittman. Yep. You know, and Lucas blew the whistle on BSD. Rick Pittman has come out in support of us on the right to rescue. Yeah. Like this is a guy who we investigated. We quote unquote stole turkeys from him. Mm-hmm. And he said, you guys did the right thing. You were just trying to save lives. Yep. Like imagine that. Oh yeah. A factory farmer saving that rescuing an animal from a factory farm is just saving lives. But if we take the mentality that the modern left is taken mm-hmm. towards disagreement, we can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and then how do we create change? How do we, you know, what Erica Chenoweth, the, the Harvard professor, calls, you know, basically undermining the pillars of support of an unoppressive system. Yeah. Part of the way you do that is if you just go to the people who are not supporting that system, if we just talk to vegans and animal rights activists, we'd never be able to find the pillars of support mm-hmm. for the oppressive system and, and, and pull the rug out from underneath it. Yeah. You know, and you did that brilliantly with Lucas. So, so, okay. No, go ahead. You uh, yeah, I mean, and, 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 and it's, it, it, to me, I, I, I wish I could uh, clone myself and do multiple things at once here. Cause one, one, one rendition of myself that I would love to do, or, you know, somebody could do or whatever is I, I just, there's like a whole different way of having these conversations, a whole different way of outreach that is not what we're, you know, that, that's not yeah. the go vegan message. That's just Uh-oh. like, you're going to get in some just, trouble uh, now. Yeah. <laughs> you For know, the record, but, I love the go vegan message. Uh, unlike Matt Johnson. Uh, I actually do. So you can sign it over. That's we'll just, a separate podcast. Let's let the record officially sign over boycott veganism. It was now written by me. Wayne has authorized it. He never had Take anything it. to do with it. Take it. I license it fully to you. Let's uh, put your, you know, I never put my name on that article uh, for a reason. Because uh, I'm done, yeah. yeah but because I, when I got the feedback, when I mean, it was circulated without my consent. Right, you know, yeah. like it was published without my consent. I, I mean, it was a point in my life where I was angry at vegans. I thought, and it just, it's kind of like, you never want to write anything on the internet when you're angry. Right. right? Just That's just, don't do it. You know, right. for any of you listening to this, if you're angry and you're thinking, if you're angry about something we just said, yeah. You know, I, I'd love to hear it, frankly, but the time to write that on the internet, or frankly, write it at all, is not when you're angry. Yeah. And it was a time where I was particularly angry at the vegan movement, and so I wrote this dumb thing that uh, overstated. I, but I posted, thing. I posted <laughs> it on a forum for feedback, like a, I think it was a private forum, and immediately it was circulated everywhere, and I got banned from all the vegan groups. So I was yeah. like, and then when I saw that, like, and honestly, I I disagree. I mean, this again, I, this is a separate podcast. DXC posted this thing about how the go vegan message is counterproductive. I actually disagree with saying that because I think there is value in it. 
And I think more importantly, it doesn't acknowledge the power of that message to reinforce the identities that people have. I yeah. think I've, I've met people, I'm not one of them, you're not one of them. I don't deeply identify as vegan. It's not part of my core identity, mm-hmm. you know? And so when someone says, I don't care about veganism, it doesn't really affect me. Yeah. But for some people, when they hear that, and then I'm, I'll get off this rant because we should go back to the VS story. When some people say, like, I don't care about veganism, that's kind of like, I don't care about color. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to compare them directly. Lewis has given me a funny look. Yeah. That's because you're a fucking post-vegan, dude. So I don't need, <laughs> no, but I, maybe that's, that's not, that's not a fair comparison. A no, it's a choice. It's different. Right. But, but, you know, I mean, yeah, so I'm not saying it's the same level. And I, I absolutely don't mean to compare the experience of a person of color to an experience of a vegan. Like, that's not what I'm saying at all. But there are other things people strongly identify with, like religion, which is a choice, you know? And it, it's, it's like someone, I don't, I don't give a shit about Muslims. Or I don't give a shit about Christians. Yeah. We have to understand, if someone who's Muslim, you know, I, I am a Buddhist, and I, I identify much more strongly as a Buddhist than I do as a vegan. And I wouldn't be that hurt if someone says, I don't give a shit about Buddhism. But it would honestly, it would irritate me a little. You know, I knew if I was deeply into Buddhism and I was a monk, then it would probably irritate me more. And for a lot of people, veganism is the same sort of thing. Yeah. You know, just why Bruce Friedrich, of all people, hardly, you know, a radical vegan, he wrote a, a law review article saying that animal liberation and veganism should be a protected religion. You know, and, and when you start thinking of veganism as a religion, and I, unlike you, I don't think religion is necessarily bad. You know, uh, I don't you know. two are probably shaking their I, heads, but I don't know. No? I mean, no. There's, okay. there's some upside. I mean... Okay, but I mean, I know a lot of people like the Richard Dawkins type, Sam Harris. I thought you thought religion was bad, but I don't feel that way, and I think it's important to respect people's identity. So, but anyways, this is a huge tangent. If you want to add something on that, go ahead. But we should go back to VSD because well, I want to finish that story. Well, I, yeah, I, the the boycott veganism article I think overstated. Which you shouldn't. Mean. Uh, but uh, but I I would would say brilliant. I think it's it stated too strongly, as as probably likewise with uh, DXC's recent post along these same lines. But I think the main the main thrust of it is is right on, and I would recommend that people read it. But take out all your nasty feelings on me. Okay. Well, nonetheless, whatever 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 it was that generated the powerful relations with Lucas, let's go back yeah. to the story that I, I I apologize. I'm the one who took you off that story. So you develop the relationship, you go out to Iowa, and then you start planning the cameras. So tell us about that experience. I mean, how did you even find the place? I guess it was yeah. Lucas who tipped you off. Yeah. So Lucas has uh, several, uh, you know, or, I mean, he's been working for the company for years. So he has a lot of different friends that are in a lot of different places. And he's yeah. kind of like getting wind of things. Uh, a lot of whom are upset about this. Yeah. Not a lot just of whom Lucas. are upset yeah, about it. A lot it. of whom are upset about I mean, this. And, I mean, pretty much everybody was some degree of. You know, at yeah. least like kind of like this is this th- is a little this off. is not okay to yeah. like infuriated, yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, got got very various uh, people that he knows that are here, and this is going on over here, and it's like okay, our supply is, you know, I forget the numbers, but it's like we're getting to the point where we got nowhere to go with these pigs, and this is going to be our go-to thing. Um, for the most part, they were also doing like uh, gassing of piglets and and some other stuff, which is still plenty horrifying, but uh, far, you know, a lot, a lot quicker than, than what yeah. this was. Um, so, you know, he, he's passing along that information. And like I said, he gave us at one point, it was like, hey, this is happening tomorrow. So we like buy the flights, myself and uh, Kesia, my uh, girlfriend at the time, get on the flight that next day, flying to Minneapolis. I have my brother-in-law pick us up and it is like beeline as fast as we can. And we got to the site at, um, you know, something like three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and this was actually after their second attempt at VSD. Hmm. So 
Listener, Why do you say attempt? Listener discretion advised here. Let's okay. see on that one. The prior day, they had went to do VSD, but but it's and they had the state inspector and the state vet or something like that on hand because this is like kind of not that much of a tested out thing. Mm. We, you know, whatever, haven't had a lot of these circumstances in the U.S. or for whatever reason, they just haven't really tested it. So they're trying to like figure it out. Um, so first go around, they did the VSD process as I described minus uh, pumping in steam. Hmm. So they sealed off the facility. They put, uh, they put like insulation over the air vents. They close the doors, like the whole thing. And they pump in heat as hot as they can get it. Wow. Uh, so it was like over 120 degrees. Good and God. none of, and just for, you know, hours all day long, none of the pigs die. Um, so then they, they're just in agony for hours all and hours day. And, hours. and then the following day, then they oh, did, did it, Again, like the, you know, better, but they tried to pump in steam, but they didn't quite have it like totally figured out or whatever. And this was the day when we're, so we're flying over, this is all happening and we're driving down to the, to where it's at. And this how do you is know happening. this is what happened Luke, the first day? Lucas Yeah, he you. knew. Yeah. He, cause he knew wow. people that were doing the equipment that were, were the people upset who were doing it? I mean, were they feeling um, it? I mean, how, not, I mean you're just describing, I got he, not, not, they were not like feeling it at that, that level of like whistleblower level. They were uncomfortable with it, but they yeah. were just. They're just talking, trying to do their job. Talking and stuff, yeah. yeah. Um, the root of so many evils. So we come world. down. Yeah, so, so we're, we're coming down. And uh, so they did the heat, and then they did the steam the second time after all these pigs were in there the day before and just, just heat, but not to the point of dying. And they're pumping in steam, but you know they don't have it as efficiently done as they later would when they retrofitted barns specifically for this purpose. Yeah. And so these pigs are, you know, what, what we ended up getting on, on, on audio and video was several hours for these pigs to die. Well, whatever this was, we didn't get on video and audio, but we know that it was far less effective. And we know that not only because it was their second test, but because after we came down, we put a drone in the air, we got video of them dragging these pigs out of this facility with chains and loading them into these trailers. And then, and they didn't, you know, they had no clue that we were around at this point. That following night, we came back to that facility and we went inside of there and you you just see all over the place blood splatters all over the concrete ground wow. and the reason there are the blood splatters is because these pigs didn't die and yeah. they go around what they do after the fact is they take a bolt gun and yeah. kill smash them in the head smash them in the head of of yeah, i mean just the layers of horror they those are the ones that they knew were were dead yeah. but some of the pigs are going to be conscious and not going to be even yeah. vi- visibly so you know and so we see blood splatters all over the place, and we, we documented that, and, and, and bone fragments. Um, just just to finish the thought, I think we were saying is that there are animals that are buried alive, too. Oh, yeah. So, so, so yeah, Very that's likely. what that would lead you to yeah. is, yeah, is, is, yeah, animals that they get dragged out of this facility, you know, with, with a chain attached to their legs. So, I mean, yeah, imagine an animal still alive, like dragged out, scooped up with a fork truck, dumped into a, a giant, uh, like a tr- uh, semi-truck trailer, and then pigs just piled on top up to the top mm-hmm. um and in a landfill probably and then did they, you see where they eventually went eventually um yeah i mean we were aware of, of a few different places and got yeah. separately got video of that um and it's just it you know i mean this is just like sort of scratching the surface of of all sorts of horribleness we got on them i mean you know and it just defies belief it's just like being in 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 the the, the um, twilight zone when you tell people about everything that happened with vsd i mean separately you know fast forward down the road 
Lucas is, this is when they were trying to get him to flip and having this FBI mm -hmm. um, agent talk to him. He happened to be sitting in the room at the moment when ISF's chief operating wait, wait, officer- wait, wait, wait. just clarify what you mean that by that. You're, so how did how did they oh, sorry. so yeah, they I suspect that he's involved well, no, with the animal point, rights activists at this point because yeah because there's a this is after a report yeah happens. sorry okay I, so I, you're I'm fast forwarding a little bit and then the FBI goes after him basically because they think he's probably the source because the initial reports were anonymous right so yeah, this, yeah quickly my my, um, my my quick point I was was getting at was to say that like there's even so much horribleness uh, that that with with that we we later have found out since then beyond the beyond initial horribleness found, yeah. of fifteen thousand pigs dying inside of uh, a shed where the temperature gauge stopped working. So just uh -huh. like at a random moment, fifteen thousand pigs died, and they're firing employees who simply disagreed with this practice. And then the FBI is getting involved, yeah. like how like not to investigate the animal cruelty, right, but to, to find out who us. leaked it. And to try to get to Lucas out, to sell yeah. us drugs. Yeah, yeah. You know? So they can basically entrap you. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, so so many levels of just like disgustingness that just defies belief. Uh, but you know, that's the, the value in what we're doing. I honestly here. think, you know, so entrapment is illegal. You're not allowed to do that in theory. We might actually, I mean, as a lawyer, I could tell you, and it might be worth investigating that further to see what they're actually up to. And, and I know, I think maybe I shouldn't even talk about this, mm. but you know, I'm sure they're thinking that we're thinking about this, but yeah. Well, one of the most effective tools we've used over the last couple of years is freedom of information act requests. Yep. Cause we can go and find out what the government, and it's really important just as it's important for us to see what these industries are doing. It's really important to see what our government is doing because so often as in this case, the government is in cahoots with the industry. Mm -hmm. well, and, I think and the reason for that is yeah, money, right? Yeah. 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 I think it's, it's, it, you know, the way they phrased it was like, would you be willing to sell drugs to us? Like, yeah. Maybe it was to take down Al Capone. I don't know. Who knows what we might want you to sell drugs for? Just throwing a, yeah, yeah it just popped into my head. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. You know, keep it vague enough. I mean, that's not the worst thing they've done. If you look at what they've done over the last 20 years, especially to the Muslim community, it's, it's pretty terrifying. You know, yeah. just entrapping these 16, 17, 18, 19, I don't know, maybe not 16, but certainly 18, 19 year old kids right. who are just traumatized from seeing violence in Afghanistan and Iraq. And you can, you can understand why they might be upset. And then really indoctrinating them, like the FBI comes and turns them towards radicalism sells them a nuclear weapon, and then they end up in prison for them. their life Yeah, for like 40 years. It happens right. so many times. There's a great This American Life podcast about this. Like, I kind of feel bad saying this, but it's kind of a dopey guy. He's just, he's, he, I think he's interviewed in the podcast, and you could just tell he's not that sharp. And he's, and there's just these people, these mean, who are kind of, they're, they're very vulnerable Followers. people. Yeah, they just don't know what's going on. And it's clear he, this guy doesn't even understand what's going on. And, you know, thankfully, Lucas was smart enough. Lucas is a pretty sharp guy, from what I can mm -hmm. tell. And obviously, you all are pretty sharp. No one fell for that stuff. But in another context, you know, maybe someone does get tripped up in a drug bust. And, and the story that comes out of this isn't brave whistleblowers who expose cruelty at Factory Farm. It's FBI sting shows animal rights activists oh, are also yeah. dealing drugs, oh, yeah. you know, or, dealing and buying drugs. And, yeah. and, and that's, that's an error that goes out. And it's one of the ways, even the Biden administration, I mean, the Biden administration just released its list of domestic extremists and terrorists. And guess one of the, I think the five main categories is animal rights and environmental yeah. activists. Yeah. What is this nonsense? Right. It's no, absolutely nonsense. And, and people will, you know, most people, most animal rights activists are probably not aware that um, under uh, the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act passed, uh, co-sponsored by Diane Feinstein, yeah. and passed with a Democrat. Uh, yeah, she yeah she co-sponsored it, and it, it had uh, it passed by unanimous consent. wasn't even voted upon. Only had one person, yeah. um, uh, Dennis Kucinich, that, that said a word against it. 
but that characterizes peaceful civil disobedience uh, as, as domestic terrorism when it's in the context of, of animal rights activism at an animal agricultural facility. That just like, whoa, wow, that is still on the books, and it's been like 20 years. I, I want to be careful about that as a lawyer because I don't want people to think that any sort of peaceful civil disobedience is going to lead to an ATA charge. And I think one of the misnomers people have about the ATA is any sort of damage to the industry, even if it's peaceful, is going to lead to an ATA charge. Mm. There's good precedent now. And in fact, it's from California because there are these activists in Santa Cruz who are charging the ATA. It was called the ATA-4. And their case was dismissed. And the federal court ruled that there are basically two ways you can be charged under the ATA, the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. I'm not saying I think this makes the ATA a good law. It's still a terrible law. I just don't want people to think they're going to be charged yeah. under it under circumstances where they very likely will not be charged under it. And the two circumstances where you can be charged under the ATA are when you make threats of violence against an individual, like threats of violence, right, or acts of violence against an individual, or second, actual physical property destruction, right? So if you break something, then you can be charged. And, and we can argue about whether that's terrorism. I personally mm -hmm. don't think it is. But if you're not doing one of those two things and you're doing peaceful civil disobedience, I just don't want someone yeah. to listen to this podcast and think, I'm going to go do a vigil or a sit-in at a factory farm, and suddenly I'm a terrorist. Well, they might call you a terrorist, yeah. but it's going to be very hard for them to charge you under the ATA. Yeah. What, but your general point about the ATA being an example of threat amplification and, and threat inflation of them massively exaggerating the threat of animal rights activists is, is sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So, and this is a good way to segue into what happens. So you, you, you get this footage, you get this video footage and these audio recordings, and you send this to Glenn Greenwald, who we've gotten to know pretty well. Um, interesting guy. Really fascinating oh, yeah. guy. But. But tell me, I actually was not that involved in the deliberations. Did Glenn just instantly say, I'm in? You know, I, I want to tell this story? Um, f fairly, quickly, fairly quickly. It was with, uh, so, so Leighton Woodhouse is, uh, is also yeah. a longtime journalist with The Intercept. And Amazing documentarian. dude. Amazing. Super smart guy. Yeah. yeah really, good, really smart. Good friend of mine uh, by now and, and yours. And uh, he's, kind, he's a DXC SFA chapter member and uh -oh. still kind of doing, uh, you know, so uh, he's been... Uh, yeah, extremely valuable in this way. And, uh, you know, the email, the pitch would have went out to Glenn at some point, but uh, having okay. Layton right there facilitating things, um, you know, that made, made things real slick. And Glenn was pretty interested right from the get-go, and it was just a matter of like, okay, we think we're going to get this. We think it's going to happen. And it was just a matter of timing and figuring out our tech and getting people in the right place at the right time, and yeah. eventually we did. And so what's the reaction after this story gets published? How do people respond? Uh, yeah, I think to the extent that people heard it, they, it was just unanimously, well, nearly unanimously horrified, mm -hmm. um, which is which is great, of course, and, and to be expected. And the people are doubly horrified when, you know, less than 24 hours after Glenn's article publishes, I'm hauled off to jail. Um, and then I, I spent 24 hours in jail, got uh, well, kicked out of jail. Actually, they wouldn't pay their bond, but they didn't want me to stay anyways. And then that following night... Wait, wait, wait. You, you just glossed over <laughs> a pretty important event of you going to jail very quickly. And it's, I think it's more interesting. Than that. Yeah. So Glenn publishes the story. Yeah. And, and, then, I, and then immediately what the, the sheriff morning, reaches out to you, calls you? Yeah. So I got a phone call actually from the state, uh, Iowa Department of uh, Criminal Investigations. Um, and uh, he's, this agent is talking to me and saying, hey, okay, you got these this 
uh, warrant out for felony burglary and for um, this electronic eavesdropping, pl- yeah. you know, planting hidden cameras, and for um, well, they tried to put us under ag trespass, but they actually tried to charge us under an ag ag law that was struck down at the time, so that yeah. one didn't stick. So they literally tried to charge you with an unconstitutional law. That, yeah. I didn't actually know that. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, that was what, uh, Ma- Matthew Strugar. Who's, yeah. Uh, this, uh, yeah, because the, the the ag gag law, which is a law that prohibits photography or video footage from animal agricultural facilities, had just been struck down by a federal court, and they try and charge you that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And and they've since passed more, so it's just like you know. Uh, unstoppable force and an immovable object between the constitution and the determination of the Iowa legislature to, to back up animal ag, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so they call you up and they say, there's a warrant yeah. out for you. And, yeah. and, he, and, he, and he says and that. And you're still in Iowa at and, this point. Yeah. And I'm still in Iowa and I'm, and I'm, ex- you know, and I, I know I, you know, kind of was expecting this. And I, if you have an arrest warrant, that doesn't mean that you're like, yeah, persona- kind of you got to go right then. And so I'm like explaining, I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, we're, we got our media, like, this is who we are. We're very open about our work. Like, the last thing I'm going to do is run away. Like, mm-hmm. just, you know, I'm going to talk to my people. Like, give me, like, a day or two. I'll turn myself in. It'll be fine. Totally seemed like it was going to be fine. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, they, they had an example to make. And so, you know, right at the and he was trying to figure out where I was. He was asking where I was. I didn't tell him. Yeah. Um, but they were extremely determined to, you know, in that exact day, to get a warrant out for me and, and to locate me um, because of potentially further demonstrations that we would, you know, that I would be part of and leading um, in the days to come. So they wanted to hurry up and get me out of commission as fast as they could. Um, so I was totally, you know, next morning I go to bed. I think, okay, I'm going to turn myself in fairly soon here. We'll just get this release handled and whatever. I'll, then I'll go handle my court stuff, whatever. Um, knock on the door at 5 a.m., and in your I'm, hotel room. In my, oh, yeah, my hotel room. Yep. <laughs> and uh, not thinking too much of it or whatever. I'm just uh, like asleep. Confused, yeah. And it's like, okay, there's this housekeeping person and mm-hmm. we just ignore and the housekeeping person is quite Keeps persistent knocking. and knocking oh. louder and more frequently. And so like swing the door open and oh, not the housekeeping person. Wow. Um, How many cops were so, there? So uh, three, I think. Three outside the door. Okay. Yeah, and um, so yeah, grabbed uh, grabbed me up, and they were looking for two other people who were not with us. So, yeah. um, did they search all your stuff? Thing. Was there a search warrant too? Um, there wasn't a search warrant, warrant and so uh, they just had an arrest warrant. Yeah, it was it was just uh, for me and for for two others who who weren't there. And, and I think uh, we ultimately determined the people who snitched you out with the hotels, right? The hotel <sighs> actually snitched you out. Yeah, I th- and I, I guess I'm not totally clear on the law, but I, I think yeah. there's some level, like they're supposed to disclose certain things about it. I don't yeah, know. I don't know about that. I mean, I, I just want people to know that you really can't trust these companies with your data and your information. You yeah. Just, so, because um, these companies, they'll, I mean, we always talk about, oh my God, it's so bad that Google and Apple are, you know, not protecting privacy in China. And it's like, you realize none of the companies in the United States give a damn about your privacy mm-hmm. here, here in our own country too. Yeah. And, I would anyways, have and that's own... an example of that where I think, I think that's our best guess and it'll come out in the context of this court case, mm-hmm. how they did find out where you were. But I think yeah. our suspicion is it came cause it, I think I can say this cause I've looked at it and I think it's going to come out soon, but it, it was obtained in discovery mm-hmm. that there are all these photos that were taken from like hotel room screens. It's like, where did they get this? Yeah. It's obviously because the hotels were basically turning it over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think uh, pr- pr- probably like employees 
don't deal with that all the time and don't know what the heck's going on and are just intimidated and like, okay, yeah. you tell me what to do type of thing. So on net, and I think, I mean, the thing they're really trying to get you for is you actually, and we didn't talk about this, you removed one of the pigs. And again, I think the pig you removed was not from a barn that was immediately going to experience ventilation shutdown. They were probably going to be killed some other way because they were mm-hmm. younger pig. Mm-hmm. But we've just described to you like the horrors these animals are going to go through and the fact they're going to end up in a landfill. And you took one pig out, yeah. right? That was worth now, nothing. Yeah, and yeah. that's worth nothing to the industry. And they're charging you with how many charges in total? So, how many felonies and misdemeanors? And so what's the total jail time? So it's one uh, felony burglary for the piglet, and then it's uh, electronic eavesdropping is a misdemeanor, and uh, a regular, like a standard trespass, not an ag trespass on that. And then, and then subsequently, the yeah, subsequently uh, an ag ag charge for being outside of the facility. We were filming social media videos here. This is just in the past few months. Yeah. So there's that, which is an additional, would be two years in prison. So all that combined together would actually be um, over eight years potentially. Wow. Um, and then actually there were, there were separately charges in Grundy County where the actual facility was. And those were the two that I referred to earlier that yeah, they, got, they got dismissed because they were afraid to testify yeah. uh, or, you know, that's what we we're told. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, but they're all, they're all, you know, a bit obviously an obvious risk, but uh, a major opportunity. And uh, I, <laughs> I cannot, I just, I would love to be a fly on the wall inside of some of these executive conversations because I think them going to trial and having their CEO, Jeff Hansen or COO, Noel Williams, who are intimately involved in all this stuff, having to testify in in deposition or in trial is worse than anything, worse than any other option from their perspective, I believe. Uh, So we'll see. We will see indeed. So, I mean, it's, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with Matt right now is because the trial is scheduled for August, right? Yeah. It was originally scheduled for June and got pushed back. And we think that's actually going to be the date it happens. So, you know, depending on how things go, and, and this is not friendly country for animal rights activists. Yeah. I don't think there was even an investigation of ISF or any of the criminal animal cruelty you found there. And while I, Iowa does have a farm animal exemption, all the farm animal exemptions that I've read, including in Iowa, and I don't remember the exact wording of the Iowa farm animal exemption to the animal cruelty laws, make clear that if it's something that is out of the ordinary, yep. you know, not a normal practice, and ventilation shutdown is by definition not normal. It is extreme even for factory farms, which yep. is why people like Lucas Walker and one of the senior executives, I forget the name, guy's name. Who's the senior uh, executive Alan, who got Alan fired? Wiley. Yeah, Alan Wiley. Was, Alan Wiley got fired just yeah. for objecting to this. I mean, you have so many people within the industry saying and admitting this is not an ordinary practice. In fact, it's so outrageous. I'm blowing the whistle. I'm not willing to support this. Right. So from my understand, they did not even spend a minute investigating the abuses and crimes oh. committed by ISF and the devoting so much human power, so much prosecutorial power to send you into prison. Yeah. And come August, it's quite possible you may not see Matt Johnson for a few years. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you feel about that? Well, I hope uh, I'm, I'm optimistic that it, you know, even in such a scenario, that it's going to be it's going to be a net positive for for what we're doing here. <laughs> I mean, how how, how do you I, feel about that personally? I uh, can be a pretty enthusiastic reader and <laughs> a pretty enthusiastic uh, sleeper and uh, push shopper. So that's yeah, put it on a brave face. But <laughs> and and I've been in jail myself a few times. Everyone I've talked to has said there's dramatic difference between being in jail for a couple days when you know it's likely you're going to bailed out and there's, you know, pretty discreet limit to how long you're going to be there and spending years in prison. Yeah. In every single person without fail that I know, 
and and I know quite a few now, and you mm-hmm. know, I think it's above ten now of, of people I personally know and have talked to, and some of them good friends, who spent more than a year in prison, has been traumatized by the experience. Yeah, every single one of them, you know, including really really strong people. Lauren yeah. Gazzola is an incredibly strong person. Kevin Jonas, who spent seven years in prison, I think, yeah. incredibly one of the strongest people in the animal rights movement's history. Mm-hmm. In was traumatized by this experience and now is out of the movement, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I just, I don't want us to minimize what's going to happen. And I think the bravado is great and it, it's a fantastic attitude to have, but it's also be realistic about what that might mean for you, yeah. for your family, for your friends and, and, and for the activists who care about you and, and for all of our supporters, you know, yeah. who care about you and have been inspired by this work. It's scary yeah. that in two months, it could be eight years before I see you, you know, outside of a jail. Yeah. And, and that's, that's scary. You know, I mean, what, and one of the most disturbing things about this is it's, it's not just animal rights activists. When you said earlier that this was uni- universally condemned, there's an AP writer who has been writing story after story about this, who is shocked and horrified by the fact that you're being punished while ILSF is walking away without any sort of accountability. There is an op-ed writer in the Domain, Des Moines Register, the largest paper in Iowa, which is not, I mean, Des Moines, it's more progressive than some places in Iowa, but Iowa's Iowa, you know, it's, but the op-eds have all been in support. There are 3,000 veterinarians. I'm sitting next to Crystal Heath, who started a petition that got thousands, literally thousands of veterinarians all saying, this is a horrific practice that should be outlawed. Yeah. Right. So you, and and again, even people in the company, even senior Mm -hmm. executives in the company saying this is wrong. So, so much agreement, this is wrong. And yet you are the one, you are the one yeah. who might face fucking eight years in prison. What the fuck, people? <laughs> yeah. What the fuck? Seriously, that yeah. is seriously messed up. Yeah. I'm like, it's making me angry right now because yeah. I don't want to see you go. And if you, it, it, yeah, to me, it's just like every time, like you, when you say those words, like to people, it, it, I, I just can't help but think that people are like, wait, 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 wait. No, that can't be, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah, no, it, 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 it's actually the case. So yeah, it would be very unjust and very unfun. And, uh, I, th- I, th- I think hopefully, <laughs> hopefully useful. And, and we do have, um, what do you mean by useful? The- like for, for someone who's not understanding yeah. your words, they, they, they're going to think you're yeah. at least odd <laughs> and maybe honestly, like Delusional there's or- something wrong about <laughs> your head, but what, what do you mean by yeah. useful? Cause I think it's important people to understand yeah. The purpose for the sacrifice and the fact that you went into this because you went into this eyes wide open, right? You didn't go into this thinking, oh, you know, they're going to charge ISF if I find criminal animal cruelty. You yeah. were not that naive. So what do you mean by useful? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're going in. It was, you know, we we're I mean, yourself and others, you know, getting the legal assessment. It was like, yeah, likely felonies. Yeah. Um, it ended up being in a particularly bad county. Uh, at the time, it was in Steve King's district. He's since been uh, voted out, uh, but uh, definitely a very red One county. One of the most right-wing congressmen in American history. Yeah. He was like, he was the guy who was basically evicted by his own party because of white supremacy, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. But go ahead. So it ended up being in a particularly unfriendly county uh, where, where the, the charges happened, but that's kind of how it worked out. But in terms of its, its usefulness, uh, I mean, it's, it's already been useful and which kind of feels like a callous way of saying it or something but you know straightforwardly raising awareness getting people horrified outraged active to to do something about this and it's not just about this practice of ventilation shutdown it's it's more fundamental it's saying like wait what kind of system 
would, would make this possible. Yeah. Like it's not, this isn't just like, how did the, I just stumbled out of my house one day and happened to put a bunch of insulation up in a shed and cook these pigs alive. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. How do we get the conditions to do that? And you know, when you sort of can step back from the normalcy of normal practices like gestation crates where pigs can't even turn around their entire lives, like cutting testicles off of baby animals with no anesthetic, cutting tails off of it, you know, on and on and on the, the horror show that is animal agriculture. That's just behind closed doors. You know, it's very clearly a, a, a systemic issue. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, you have to be really a sociopath to independently do the sort of things that are business as usual within animal agriculture. And so, um, you know, waking people up to not only just animal suffering on the face of it, but sort of like, whoa, something is way backwards here. We need to completely rethink that. And, you know, I think where we mutually land on, on rethinking that is that we, you know, transition from having a relationship with animals fundamentally as property that we can use and abuse however we basically want to, to one of, of legal rights. And it's, uh, you know, a, a long ways to get there and that's not going to solve all the problems, but sort of enshrining that, you know, one day as a constitutional right is going to, you know, well, I say, I say gonna, hopefully we can talk about it as an inevitability uh, to be uh, an amazing no hope thing. What's going to happen. I mean, I just think there's so many signs on the wall, but I think yeah. the point you made that's really important to elevate is this, this question. How did we get here? How do we get to a world where someone can stuff a bunch of pigs into a crowded room and roast them alive and it's totally loud. And the answer is what's happening to you. That we get to a system like that when someone who tries to point that out nonviolently and just publish openly what he saw is threatened with prison yeah. for raising that objection. That is the sort of system that allows the mass atrocities against animals yeah. to continue to happen. Because when you try to dissent from it, you are crushed. Yeah. You are financially, you are Politically, you are physically caged and crushed. They try to ruin your life. And, and that's why it's important for us to get these stories out and why it's really important for me to have this conversation with you before you go to trial. Because to me, you know, the reason we go into this, and I'm facing charges too, and you are too, and, and mm -hmm. so with Lewis, who's, who's sitting next to me, the reason we do these things is because we know that the way to get out of this, this, this trap, this diluted system, is for people to do it anyways. Mm-hmm. You know, and just and, and start that conversation. And, and this is a concept that um, political scientists called communicative suffering. And this actually goes back to the original debate we had about what sort of disruption do I like? What sort of disruption do I not like? This is a sort of disruption that I like most because it puts you on the moral high ground. Mm -hmm. Instead of disrupting just everyone else, honestly, the, the biggest disruption that's going to happen to any human being's life because of your actions at ISF is going to be to your own life, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? You are the one who's bearing all that pain and sacrifice and disruption. So you disrupted the company for sure, but you're bearing so much of the weight, right? Eight years potentially of prison time mm. that the way people see it, it's like, yes, am I throwing a wrench in the system? Yeah. But guess what? Guess what is actually going to happen to me? You know, I'm, I'm actually throwing my own body. It's not actually a wrench that's being thrown in the system. I'm actually throwing my own body. Mm -hmm. Like physically, I will be caught up in this political industrial complex that's preventing animals from being protected and harming human beings too yeah. because of my actions. And I think the way people perceive that disruption is very different because you've got skin in the game now. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it's so it, good yeah. for you, dude. Like right on. That's super fucking righteous. And I'm proud to be your friend. Oh, man, I'm I fucking mean, proud to be. I your mean, friend. I'm, Seriously. I'm, I'm talking to you're a brave the, motherfucker. And I love it. <laughs> well, I'm talking to the greatest mentor I've ever had no, by no, far. No, no. Uh, it's, uh, I, I don't think I'd be, I'd be where I'm at if, if not yeah. for, uh, for you and, uh, yeah, I gotta say, sometimes it's, I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's a, a climate. I think everybody kind of yeah. is better than uh, bigger than the sum of the parts type of situation. Yeah, and I think I, I think one of the things we really have to start remembering, and you know, we haven't really felt this because none of our people have gone away yet. And I think the closest we got to this was in December of 2019 when I thought I was one week away from trial, and in North Carolina, and you know, that's that's a dangerous case, mm-hmm. and. I think we've gotten a little brazen about this mm-hmm. and a little bit there's, a, I mean, the bravado is good in some ways because it inspires us. It allows us to stay positive in the face of like all these criminal charges. But I remember like, I'm going to use one person's name. I don't think he's going to mind Matthew Leeds. who I don't even know very well when we were talking about that. And I said, you know, I, I have to say like, I, I'm ready for this and I've been waiting a long time to get to fight in court about this, but I'm scared because I, I may never see my dog again, mm-hmm. like Lisa, who I love. I mean, I rescued her from a dog fighter. I hand fed her. She's attached to my hip. She loves me more than anyone in the world. I love her more than anyone else. And she's, at the time, was 13 years old. She's getting sicker and older. And I thought, I possibly, because they don't allow you to see your dog. I mean, that's yeah. not one of the privileges you get. Yeah. And Matthew loves his dog, too. And Matthew doesn't even know me very well. He, he started crying. Like, and we've got to start realizing this is real. This shit is real. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm, I'm going to be affected by it if you go to prison, like, and hopefully it lights a fire under my ass and it makes me want to fight harder. But if we don't prepare ourselves properly for these sorts of things, it could have the opposite effect. Cause Mm -hmm. that's what happened to the Shaq kids 15 years ago. They went in with a lot of bravado. They thought, you know, we can take on the FBI, but they didn't have the community around and support, which is why it's important for us to give you support. Cause I think this is, I think it's going to be the first felony trial in DXE history. Right. And, you know, Felony trials are nothing to laugh about. Oh, the first about. criminal trial, I think, that actually happened. <laughs> Is that right? Because it's been, you know, we yeah, keep, I keep right. advertising that it's going to happen, but then various trials right, get, uh, you know, I think it's, yeah, I think it's going to be our first yeah. criminal trial. Yeah. So you and Linda, too. Let's give a huge shout out to Linda Critch, because, you know, yeah. there's another woman. I'm getting goosebumps right now just thinking about Linda, too, because, mm-hmm. you know, Linda is just such a sweetheart. Like, even the way she talks to people, I mean, uh, she's a mother. She's from central Indiana. I'm, I've got a sweet spot in my heart for Indiana <laughs> Hoosiers because I'm from Indiana, too. She's going to trial, too, potentially in July. Oh, and she... And I think it's more yeah. likely they drop the case against her. But yeah. nonetheless, she's facing the same charges. And the yeah. face, and I think I think you've got, like, one or two other charges than she does. Yeah, okay. so you're yeah. the main target. But she's got years in prison, too. Yeah. And that means her daughter may not see her for the next decade. You know, her daughter could have a family and have completely changed and will have graduated from college and she'll never see her mom. Yeah. Never see her mom for the next 10 years or so, you know, eight years or whatever it is. Yeah. So we got to prepare ourselves for this and, and understand the sacrifice may be worth it, but it is a real, real fucking sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. So good on you, my friend. Yeah, well, we'll see. Hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully, it's like the optimal amount. You know, like maybe not everybody goes to prison. Like, what's yeah, let's not have let's, 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 let's just get like like how many? Uh, a couple could, years for a couple. Couple, a couple years, years for a couple, couple people. That's maybe that's DXC used to be like you know social and political change for animals. A couple years for a couple people. Yeah, that's our new slogan. No. Yeah, you know, my dream is for no one to have to go to prison. Honestly, I'd love. I mean, our dream should be for the government to recognize that. This is just the right thing for all of us, including the people who are part of this industry. Yeah. 
you know, I, I've told Rick this, you know, Rick, who's the factory farm owner, you know, I'm doing this for your kids too. Yeah. You know, cause if our planet dies, your kids will suffer. And if, if we really do, I mean, as you convince Lucas of, and as I'm trying to convince Rick of, and, and also, you know, being open to, to knowledge from them too. Cause like, I think you're the first to admit, if you didn't have Lucas's experience and insight into the system, you would not have been able to create the change you've oh, created, no, right? No, he, yeah. Lucas was Needle crucial to this. So, and that meant being humble enough to understand, hey, I'm like the brave animal rights activist who thinks I know everything. I think I'm hot shit when it comes to animal agriculture. But actually, there's a lot of things you know, just specific details where ventilation shutdown is happening, but mm -hmm. also other just operational things. Like when we hung out with Brad Johnson, the pig farmer in North Carolina who's getting charged, and again, totally different story. I learned a huge amount about pig farmers. Like, wow, I didn't know this, you know? So just trivial things. Like, I didn't know how often, it, how common it was for the workers to live right next to the farm. Even white people. Mm -hmm. Like, there are a lot of poor white people yeah. who are basically sharecroppers. They're like company property. They live on the property. They own land. Their, their, their home, their livelihood, their, their, the livelihood and the roof over their kid's head. Like, he literally has a child who lives in a home that is owned by one of Smithfield's contractors. And if he crosses Smithfield, he loses his home. Yeah. But I didn't realize. I thought I thought like human trafficking and and the exploitation of workers was mostly from people outside of this country because I'd heard these stories about people from Asia and Central America coming in. I didn't realize. And like this is why this is another reason why I'm so upset about people who don't understand like that white people are affected by this too. You know, we 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 can't just condemn all the white people in this country and say, you're all pieces of shit. And, and like white supremacy is a real thing. Racism is a real thing. There are a lot of white people who are suffering in this country. And again, I'm not, I'm not like poor white people and hashtag, you know, mm -hmm. what about the white people? But, but the reality is if, if we, if we're honest about the situation, it's not just people of color who are suffering from factory farms. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of poor white folks too. And we should get their support. People like Lucas, right. And yeah. people like Brad Johnson. And they don't, and it, you know, that, that just reminds me of that time and again, uh, the Des Moines Register and, and other places will have like these best workplace, you know, surveys that'll get put out there, and ISF will consistently rate Seriously. high. You know, that is and, twisted. And it, yeah, and and it, and then you you talk to people, and it's just like, well, yeah, people don't trust that this is going to yeah. be an anonymous process. Yeah. Um, you know, just I mean, pe people so see powerful. it. People see it. I mean, plenty of people are yeah. losing their jobs off of you know, saying the most obvious thing in the world about you know horrifying animal torture yeah because one thing that we did not say in this podcast yet that i think is important and then i think we can we should wrap up i'll let you offer any concluding thoughts especially since you know this could be the last time people hear from you for a while but one thing we did not say is the owner of isf iowa select farms jeff hansen is one of the largest political donors to the republican party in particular but i think also the democratic party to some extent right i'm not familiar with that i, okay. I, I would guess that's true because yeah, yeah, i think it's pretty he's pretty bipartisan in a place like iowa to one person alone, Kim Reynolds, the governor yeah. of Iowa, obviously a very powerful person. He's given $300,000 to her. Yeah. Well, between like him this and is his wife basically and his legalized son. bribery. So, yeah. and, you know, again, and we've got the documents from court cases and from FOIA requests now where Kim Reynolds is basically on speed dial for him. Yeah. You know, like that is not a democracy. That is a kleptocracy. Yeah. Where the people can literally steal our civil liberties and pass laws like the Ag Act laws. They can steal our basic freedom. Right. Yep. Where, I mean, he's paying Kim Reynolds $300,000 and guess what? The Iowa government's trying to put you in prison. Oh that, yeah. That, 
That's not a democracy. Oh, and and we even had, you know, as as this was happening and as this investigation was come out, we had uh, actually a separate AP writer from who you're talking about, but uh, an AP writer that asked about this at a Kim Reynolds press conference. Kim Reynolds had her um, Secretary of Agriculture, Mike Neg, uh, answering questions, and he... He was very prepared to answer this particular question, like, hey, what about this expose where activists are coming out, where animals are, your pigs are being suffocated? And he was just ready to go. And he said, it's disgusting. When I say it, I'm not talking about what we found. I'm yeah, talking what, what about us exposing it. Workers. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, he, yeah, he said, what we did in exposing it was disgusting, yeah. uh, kicking farmers while they're down and so on. And yeah, it's, uh, you know, how much of it do people actually believe would, or how much do people I would you know, love to that guy, get that guy in a room with Lucas. And say, this is the person you're talking about. This is a person who risked his job and potentially his freedom, too, you know, who worked mm-hmm. for the company, who was so horrified by what he saw. This guy's not being kicked. He's the one being kicked by you yeah. by saying that. Yeah. And, and the other employees that were, yeah, were, were fired and, and, and kind of all the employees who, 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 you know, there's been a climate of fear cultivated and they, they, they're not even going to fill out a survey with a negative mark of like, you yeah. know, things against ISF because they're so... They're so scared and so trapped. Um, so yeah, it's a mess. So how how do we end on an optimistic note, Matt? This is this is all dreary and depressing, and now I'm feeling kind of sad. I well, but you know, the flip of this is how much power we all have. That it's like if you can kind of like get yourself yeah. connected, and you can sort of like surround yourself with smart and passionate people, and you can do. I mean, you know, Lucas Walker, like, yeah, you know, was. You know, the end of ventilation shutdown. Yeah, I mean, because so, we didn't say this either. They tens, ended the practice right after oh, yeah. this is all exposed. And, yeah, and we, and we did several demonstrations. One of them being at Jeff Hansen's home, and then there was press on that, and they just so happened to announce yeah. right after this, you know, very yeah. controversial protest that they weren't doing it, Anymore. and it just so happened to work out that ISF um, never did it again. again we're almost positive uh, of since the time we did, even though they were in the process of retrofitting a second shed, shed yeah. so they could do this super streamlined efficient. Oh, they just so you know, and that's we, yeah. we've seen. This so they the don't DXC. want to admit it because of the animal. They don't want to give us, but it just happened to be the case. It all ended after yeah. it was exposed by you all, by Lucas, and by Glenn Greenwald. And on another podcast, we should talk about Glenn because Glenn's an amazing dude who's yep. done so much good. And he's getting so much hate. And, you know, whatever he views on his other writing and his other activism, like the stuff he's done on animal rights is legendary. Yep. Legendary stuff that Glenn has Absolutely. Had, so we, we, all have, we all have so much power. I promise yeah. you, plug into some smart and passionate people, and you can, do, you can do big things like that. So, I mean, I guess kind of the flip side of not that many people speaking up is that the few that really do and, and do it right can have a big impact. Yeah. So yeah, come to the Animal Liberation Conference. There Check you go. that out. You literally can go from being... A depressed, lonely vegan in Iowa <laughs> to being covered in the national media by a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist shutting down an abusive practice at one of the largest and most powerful companies, frankly, in the country and certainly in the state of Iowa, just by speaking truth to power, just by doing some direct action and, and saying, I just want people to see the truth. That's all it took for you. And, and while the trial is, is obviously very scary, like the, the last thing I want to add for folks is... We have to make sure this story isn't forgotten when Matt goes to trial, right? Let's blow it up even more. Let's make this 100 times worse for ISF and make sure they get battered by this. Mm-hmm. And so they understand you come after one of, one of these people who's blown the whistle, you're going to rouse a hornet's nest of grassroots activists and ordinary people who are going to condemn you for digging your heels in on violence and oppression and cruelty. Yeah. Right? And that, that. That is a secret sauce. You know, that's how I think we get out of this dreary, depressing situation where you're being punished for just doing the right thing. 
by making sure your story is told, making sure when you go to trial, it's not just you and your lawyers who are fighting this case, but all of us. Yeah. And I don't mean just animal rights activists. I mean, anybody who cares about democracy in this country is standing mm -hmm. behind you and fighting too. Yep. Let's make it happen, buddy. All right. Sounds like a plan. Thanks to Matt Johnson for joining this podcast. It was a great conversation. It, it got me really emotional, far more emotional than I expected, but, but I'm worried. You know, I'm worried that I'm not going to be able to see my friend for a long time. This episode was co-produced by Ronnie Rose, who's been just an amazing friend and ally of mine for years and is the behind-the-scenes technical force behind the podcast. He does all the editing. Louis Bernier has been helping out a lot and was the person sitting beside me managing the audio. Crystal Heath has given us a lot of support. Julie Waldrip does a lot of the web stuff. Jake Hobbs helped us with some technical stuff today. And, and of course, all of our listeners and supporters. But if you like this podcast and you want to support Matt, please, please, please share this podcast with somebody you know so they can hear his story and the story of these animals who are suffering so brutally. And subscribe to this podcast so you can hear the next story because there are going to be so many amazing stories just like this one, and you're not going to hear them unless you subscribe. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time.